0: We have these three practices that we do. They are, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. I notice is observation, I wonder is curiosity, and it reminds me of is creative thinking. That's the mantra of this nature journaling community, taking all those things and putting them into our journals using words, using pictures, using numbers, haikus, diagrams, maps, all these different sorts of things.
1: and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain, in conversation with San Francisco-based artist, naturalist, and educator John Muir Laws. John, or Jack as I'll call him during this conversation, is the founder of the Wild Wonder Foundation, dedicated to encouraging nature connection and conservation through attention, curiosity, art, science, and community. We speak about the fascinating subject of nature journaling, and I ask him such enlightened questions as How the heck do you draw a bird in the sky, Jack? We speak about the importance of being out in nature, and of how we have lost touch with the act of simply being in the moment. I asked him if someone like me can do nature journaling, a city person who does not even properly identify birds or trees, and he says, one of the most profound things I really needed to hear. Engaging with your natural environment is about observation and curiosity. Knowing the names of things is completely irrelevant to this pursuit. This is a conversation for young nature enthusiasts, the generation that will be most affected by the repercussions of climate change, It is for the people who want to affect change in their environment but feel powerless inside their lives to do anything of value. It is for students, but it is for adults as well. There are many portions ideal for educators, whether you lead a class or a local community, for people who want to organize positive action to encourage a more peaceful coexistence with our beautiful natural world. Jack tells me about the foundation about the extraordinary content of his informative, illuminating, and engaging YouTube channel, he wants to help people who are isolated, perhaps geographically, to build global connections and to find support in their solitary pursuits. Something as simple as putting out water in your garden for migratory birds, picking up trash along a hike, like observing the flora and the fauna that lives around you, that has lived on the land of your home for centuries before you came around. He has so many ideas to kickstart, inspire, and empower individual efforts to make our world a more livable, harmonious, and sustainable place. This conversation has inspired me. It has given me ideas for more things than I thought I could do. And I know that it will help you too. If you felt alone in your concerns, if you felt isolated in your fears, isolated doubly by the extremities of the pandemic, this conversation will help you create important connections. I wanted to say about these nature journaling videos, I saw one of them the day before yesterday, it was an hour and a half. And I just loved all of it. I just you you did so much demoing, and you were explaining how, you know, the idea of getting into this practice and how to break down the form of a bird and make it achievable to draw. And that was really eye-opening for me. And I, I really loved watching it and I'm really happy to hear there are 40 of them.
0: Oh no, no yeah, so no, actually the, the, the thing which you saw um, that was an hour and a half long, um, every, every week I record two live sessions. And those are uh, those are usually about an hour and a
1: half long. Sometimes we get into a group discussion at the end. A lot of young people were sharing their uh Isn't that wonderful? Well. It was absolutely amazing. Oh. Like I was amazed not only by what they were able to do, and I mean, not just the technical skill of the drawing, but I was amazed by how much knowledge they had on these subjects and just the idea of young people actually engaging with the nature around them and having a sense of, these are the birds that live in my environment. I grew up in a city and being from a very dense urban part of the world, you don't really have a sense of your natural environment. So I didn't have a sense of what are the trees that grow around me? What are the plants and what are the what are the birds that are found only in my part of the world that are special to my part of the world? I had no sense of that. And it's only been recently that I've been Sort of exploring it because now I'm in a very new part of my world and I live in the Pacific Northwest and I'm here for the first time in over the last two years. And it's made me suddenly very conscious of this fact that I'm surrounded by foreign trees and I'm surrounded by foreign birds whose sound I have never heard before. So speaking to you today is like a very... uh, it's a very timely and a very special opportunity for me because we are going to hopefully touch on a lot of subjects that have recently started to make me very, very curious. That's oh, that's going to be, I, I'm really looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, I think
0: this is going to be a great conversation. Um, but to, just to kind of back up a little bit, those those kids that you saw in that video, they're all over the world. They're also in urban centers and finding nature around them. Um, And it is so exciting and inspiring to see what they see. And there's a myth about kids today that kids are just wrapped into their devices, but many kids are also engaging with their natural environment. Right. And for a lot of urban kids, they can name many more Pokemon than they can their native trees and birds. Right. But all it takes is, is a, if they can find a mentor who can show them how much fun it is to geek out in the natural world. It's just there's so many mysteries and, and trees to
1: climb and stuff to, to, to discover. Nature has an incredible pull. And I especially resonate with that idea that, you know, we tend to think of, oh, the young people today are so distracted by their phones. And I have two points in contradiction to that. Firstly, it's that uh, even the adults are quite addicted yes. to their phones. So it's not a generational thing. It is simply a human thing. And we have more data points now for the for the present than we did for the past. So when we think about how uh, people were not distracted in the past, we're looking at very select few people whom we happen to have knowledge about, some kind of passed down sure. knowledge. But today we have real-time knowledge about everyone all over the world. And there tends to be a bit of selection bias in how we feel about people behaving as compared to the past, because we're simply inundated by so much of the present. Okay. I Who was it? Who was it? Who was it? it was One of
0: the, the ancient Greek philosophers, we have them kind of carrying on about the problem with kids these days. So back then, people were going. Kids these days, I'll tell you, they're just addicted to their papyrus, you know. Uh-huh. And so the these series of forty short videos, mm-hmm. and those are fifteen minutes long, and so that a, a school teacher can do one a week with their class and have these episodes for the entire school year, and then the hour and a half videos, I do. Two of those every week, and those are just live in conversation and live demos, depending on our question of the day.
1: Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm I'm really curious to check it out because I really like this idea of how small things can add up to becoming this kind of tome of knowledge and information. And your example of the Pokemon is very uh, useful to me because really what we're seeing is that once you gamify something suddenly people are uh, excited about chasing these fake points or getting these, uh, you know, fake medals. And in the pursuit of those things, they end up learning a lot more. So people are learning about Pokemon in their environment and they are exploring their environment with the Pokemon Go uh, game when they, <laughs> when they try to look for Pokemon or they train. I'm not even sure about how it works. They train them, I think, or something. I have no idea either. I've, I've never played but, it.
0: I, I have seen people out in out out in public holding their phones up and sort of waving them around and there's
1: something going on there and uh It's, it's fascinating i saw it for the first time i think 2017 or 16 it became a big deal but uh i recently downloaded an app which helps me identify trees in my environment and suddenly just the idea of collecting or identifying as many trees as I could and just that little number saying you have found 20 trees this week. This yes. made me want to do it more. So just a little tweak to the way that we imbibe knowledge, to the way that we feel about accumulating knowledge can make it so exciting and so engrossing for anybody. And I, that's, that's why these uh, modern movements towards getting people interested in these things which we consider have now become boring are also fascinating. We can use our new tools. We can use YouTube. We can use all these various ways of communicating across thousands and thousands of miles to generate interest in these things again. Yeah. And
0: just to, to to add to that, so these these new tools are useful and you want to figure out how to use them in a way that engages you more deeply with the world instead of distracts you from it. And at the same time, there are ancient tools like keeping a journal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean it's it's it is old school technology. And it works. It works really well. And so finding like you're talking about that you've got an app and it helps you identify trees. There are apps that you hear a bird singing, you hold it up, and it will identify what bird you're listening to by its voice. These things are amazing technology. There are apps that you can uh, you can take a photograph of any plant. It will compare that sort of do plant face ID, um, and also then contribute that photograph to a citizen scientist database of what's where. Um, these things are are useful. And we can use them in a way that helps us engage. Um, And the the danger is we can also, it can be an environment that distracts us from being present. And so we just have to learn, we have to, this is the first time any of this stuff has been part of our kind of human experience and we have to figure out how do we do this intentionally?
1: Absolutely. I, I think that that word is the key word here. How do we do it intentionally? How do we do, these things with uh, deliberation. I feel that uh, in these last two decades, since the phone has become this inseparable part of our lives, we've just been inundated with new possibilities and we've sunk deeper and deeper and given everything of ourselves to our devices. And maybe the next the next phase of this is to recalibrate how we engage with technology and how much we allow it into our world and how much we decide to keep a certain uh, safe distance from it. Yeah, how do we engage with with technology?
0: What are the aspects of it that we want to invite into our world, invite into our family? And uh, because these, these tools are... And just as keeping a journal is a tool, there are externalizations of our thinking process. And the way you think when you have a little notebook in your hand is different if, than the way you have, than, than when you have a phone in your hand. And the way that when you have a, a journal in your hand and you're writing is different than the way if you're making a sketch or a diagram or a map and figuring out which one of these pulls us into pulls us into the experiences
1: that make us more alive and more connected i absolutely agree so uh, i hope that having a long form podcast is also contributing to this idea of really deliberately intentionally giving time to the things that make us curious because so much of our distractions today are just those things, things that have been imposed upon us as the things that demand our curiosity. And one of the troubling features of this to me has been that people have started to relegate their own curiosity and their own interests in the name of things that have been given to them. And we have a very passive attitude towards the media that we consume instead of taking a deliberate role in shaping the content that comes to us, the content that lives in our mind, the things that we think about and the things that suddenly flash before us and then take away our attention. So some of the things I want to talk to you about, like I want to talk to you about uh, drawing birds. I want to talk to you about how uh, this habit of nature journaling manifested in your life and how it can benefit other people. And I want to then move towards this greater topic, which is so relevant to all of us of nature stewardship. But uh, uh, Jack, I want to tell you the great privilege of having your own podcast, <laughs> having your own <laughs> mic in which you get to decide the terms, is that you get to start from wherever you want. And I absolutely love exercising this privilege with every episode. So the most fascinating thing that I learned about the things you do is that to draw birds or to draw animals in the wild is a naturally sneaky habit. And as a sneaky artist, I have a lot of respect for this. Uh, I like to imagine myself in cities as some kind of uh, David Attenborough voice going in my mind. And I'm trying to observe humanity from a distance and making my drawings and getting out of there before I disturb them, quote unquote. But this is a much more, this is almost a whimsical question for me, but it is almost an essential requirement for you when you're drawing birds or animals, because I don't see you getting too much cooperation from them in this exercise. So tell me a little bit about this. What is it like to be out in the wild and trying to capture things in a little sketchbook that might fly away? It is in many ways close to what you describe, but there's, there's a few little nuances I think that are, are
0: really, really interesting and fun. Um, a long time ago, I saw the movie Bambi. And in the movie Bambi, there's this moment in which man comes to the forest. And you see all the crows flying up in this disturbance, and all the animals start running and hiding. And in in many ways, it's it's like that. We are the most powerful, dangerous predator on the entire planet, and a lot of the critters have gotten that memo. And so they, uh, when I walk out into the forest, I imagine there's this 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 bubble of silence and stillness around me that as I have entered that, I've created this little bubble of disturbance. And sometimes there are noises, but those noises that I'm hearing, as I've learned more about birds, I'm actually hearing their alarm calls. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're signaling to other birds, you know, potential threat has just shown up on the scene. Keep your eyes on this, everybody. So everybody's hiding. And what I will often do is I'll look down at my feet and I'll find a mushroom or a pine cone or a little flower that's growing. And I'll sit myself down beside that and just get out my pencil and start noticing things. And I'm using words, I'm using pictures, I'm measuring things, using numbers. I'm just trying to take whatever I observe and get it down on paper. So my essential process, like if you see something, say something, right? Put it down. On your journal, the journal then is this—it's this extension of my brain, but it has has a much larger hard drive. Uh, and and kind of a working memory than just my 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 electric meat on its own. But so I start focusing on this this little thing, and invariably I'm learning new things about it, even if I've seen this flower a million times. But as I sit there. The critters in the forest around me are also watching this unfold. And they're like, oh, look what he's doing. Just <laughs> chilling down there by that little plant. You know, This is not the, the behavior of a predator. Mm-hmm. And so the longer I sit there, the more the animals that are around me relax and begin to go about their business. And they start... That bubble of silence and disturbance that I injected into the forest starts to shrink and shrink and shrink around me till the animals are coming out right next to me. Right. And and then as so I, I will also then turn my focus every once in a while, like, what's going on around me? What's going around me? I hear a little call, I raise my head, and like, oh, now looks what's here. So then I'm, my, my curiosity will flow from one thing to another thing. It often starts with this this little moment at my feet that lets nature get used to my presence. And once I'm accepted into that forest, there are stories that unfold around me that I will have, that I'll be privileged to, that otherwise I would not have seen.
1: Right. It It feels to me that, you know, this process of that bubble shrinking, that bubble dissolving into the forest, it also changes how you suddenly behave in your environment. When we step into the forest, we have this bubble around us and it can, like you put it, it can be thought of as a bubble of exclusion. The rest of the natural world is going to stay outside it. But then as this bubble dissolves, suddenly uh, it, it can also be thought of as a bubble of well, a comfort zone of safety of uh, for the human inside that the rest of the world is outside it. But as it dissolves, you become more of a person in your environment, and I can feel that yes. it would also change how you walk after that, the sounds you make, the noise, you know, the the things you do to quote unquote disturb your environment again. It it changes, yeah, and I, I I love the the point that you've just made. That's
0: a that's a really good thought because as that bubble dissolves, your connection with the place and the things around you grows. That bubble is also your armor against connection with the world around you. And so as that fades away, you're able to, it it does change the way that you feel in relationship to this place, in relationship to the things around you. Um, Your heart rate changes, your breathing changes, uh, if you had If I had some way of measuring my brain waves when i 'm out there i 'm sure that would all be changing as well and um, I find that i I very often will sort of drop into a flow state where I am really just hyper conscious and focused and curious and sometimes walking sometimes crawling, whatever the investigation demands um, yeah. in this place, you're, you're absolutely right. You then move in
1: a different way than you do when you're walking to the grocery store. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, taking the example of the grocery store, there is this sense of other people and how they will see us and therefore behaving according to the norms that uh, you know, human society dictate. Like I'm just thinking about this because you mentioned I would crawl if I needed to crawl, like because of something yes. you've seen or something you're observing that's closer to the ground. Something you would never do if you were on a city sidewalk because it's just not something that is done. But that's right. these that's standards right. of what is done and what is accept, quote-unquote acceptable, they suddenly dissolve as well. Suddenly you are in your environment and none of these rules apply anymore of how a person should behave in it. And in addition to that, when you're there going to the grocery store,
0: Your purpose is not to be wherever you are along the sidewalk. Your purpose is to get to the grocery store, get X, Y, and Z, bring them back and do something with it. So there's a goal that is different than what you're doing right now. You have to do this because you have this other goal. But when you're in the forest and that bubble has melted away, your goal is to be present in that moment with whatever it is giving and it is and it's it's easily attainable like a lot of people meditate to try to make some connection with here and now mm-hmm. but in this moment in the forest it could not be more of that
1: yeah yeah that's that that's a beautiful point actually and especially what you say about you know having that goal of a destination in mind which is pretty much how we navigate our, our urban lives around other people. The idea that people wear uh, headphones and are listening to music when they travel on the subway, I think of it you know, and I, I'm observing such people and I'm drawing such people. And the thoughts running through my mind are that they are trying to make a bubble around themselves. Yes. A bubble of audio and various sensory perceptions in which outside noises are not permitted. They will not look at things that they don't want to look at. They will look at their screen because that's what they have chosen to look at. And they are only concerned then with arriving at the destination that they seek to arrive at. And that's when they will, quote unquote, wake up again. But until then, they are in this this sleep mode, in this autopilot mode in which they are uh, navigating their world. But they don't need to or they don't care to be aware of everything or the minutia of their world. This is something I noticed also because this is something I consciously changed about myself when I decided I was going to walk around cities drawing things. I stopped listening to music while I was outdoors. I started looking at all kinds of things around me. I started thinking not in terms of going to a specific place to draw a certain thing, but simply going in a direction and seeing what would catch my eye. And so I made it my business to be curious. I made it my business to find something that would catch my eye. And this completely changed how I interacted with my world. So this is something I, I'm curious uh, to ask you about as well. When you would go on a hike and you're, you're at a location, like I noticed you were recently at the Galapagos Islands, do you have a fixed goal in mind of what you are seeking to draw or does every hike simply begin open-ended? Um, it's,
0: it's sort of a, a, a yes and. Um, Sometimes I there is if I'm sometimes I, I, I do have a goal, something I'm I'm looking for, or sometimes I have a question that is burning in my mind, and I'm looking for clues that bear on whatever mystery has gotten me curious. Um other times I'm I, I, I am going very sort of in an, an open ended way, and I can I can just sort of trust the system, I can trust the process that I can start with just whatever is nearby, pay attention to it, kind of get my brain into this state of of awareness, of focus, where I am using my journal to Collect all of these observations. Uh, collecting my questions, so as I'm intentionally asking questions and trying to find little mysteries, because when I when I do, I it it essentially opens a rabbit hole, and that and then I dive down those as as I find them. The more I can get myself curious about something in my environment, mm-hmm. the more my brain is going to engage with whatever that is. Um, So sometimes I I am directed and sometimes I am open-ended and I find those two experiences to be very different. And I would not say that one is better than the other. I think because they are so different, it is really useful to intentionally do both.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's such a great point. I don't normally ask people about the tools they use because I find that that is the least interesting thing about how an artist or why an artist does what they do. But uh, in this case, I am curious because of the circumstances around it. So uh, if you were to go out and let's let's think of it as a casual hike through a national park, uh, what would you carry with you? What would be the idea of this, of this journey? Would you be going with people who are not sketchers, who are not uh, nature journaling like you? And what would that equation be like to to balance both of those things? To balance almost, in a sense, to balance your uh, real life with your natural huh? existence. Yeah, well, I am
0: I'm embedded in real life. The most important thing that I'm doing these days is being a father. Um, I've got two little daughters, and uh, they they both also have have journals and. Uh, sometimes want to do that, and sometimes they don't. So sometimes we're we're adventuring in the forest. We'd go on what we call adventures, and the idea is we the the girls uh we we have this practice which we call up down over around and through, where we just kind of get up in nature. Then we're climbing things, crawling down through things, just seeing getting off trails, and the girls have. Their, uh, these adventure girl kits that they have that sometimes they pull out their rope and will use the rope to climb up something, down something, and it's it's this this big adventure. Um, And very often in those, I like to find a moment where we, as we start to focus on something that we found that's really interesting, we'll bring out our journals and explore that together and... Um, I will often have more well I I have more stamina for that than they, than they do hmm. but we'll we'll together intentionally intentionally geek out with whatever phenomenon we found and um, just work that into the fabric of what we do but when I do that uh, out with the family I will very often I will not have as many pages filled in a journal than I would if I were out on my own Um, and this is I think another great example of that it's a different experience when I just get out there on my own it's a different experience when I am with my family and both are really rewarding and exciting and wonderful and so I i would never give up one for the other right but yeah. my 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 little personal kit um it sits it's actually sitting uh 1 meter away from me on the ground here it's a shoulder bag and it mm-hmm. has uh it's got binoculars in it it's got hand lenses it's got measuring tapes it's got um it's got a goniometer uh which is a tool for for uh, originally is used by physiotherapists for studying how much movement somebody has in a joint but i use it for measuring angles of of uh, of light reflecting off things or uh angles of of branches coming off trees um so i've got kind of a toolkit to help me help me geek out Um, And then tools to help record that. So I've got a a notebook in there. um, And I always encourage people to bring a notebook that is as large as they would realistically regularly bring with them. Mm -hmm. So there's no ideal size. It's going to be different for each person, but as large as you would realistically regularly bring with you. Right. And... Because the more ideas you can spread out together on one page, the more your brain is going to be able to dance with more ideas at the same
1: time. Yeah, yeah. And connect uh, uh, seemingly unrelated dots. Yes,
0: yes. That's right. So, and and that, it's it's interesting that you should say that. Mm -hmm. Um, That is my working definition of curiosity. I mean, of creativity. Mm -hmm. Creativity is your brain's Ability to make meaningful connections between seemingly unrelated things.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. Uh, I so uh, one of the one of the things I really love about uh, the practice of urban sketching, at least, is uh, the community around it, and a large part of the community around it is not professional artists. There is a very important role that the amateur or the hobbyist plays in in the proliferation and in the strength and the richness of any such activity. So uh, this is also something that makes me very curious about n- not only nature journaling, but even the history of ornithology and zoology and botany. And I, I'm we, m- we might go into that if we have time. But what I want to touch upon is something you just said when you go out with your daughters and the value of uh, like I love not only the idea of exploring together, but all three of you journaling around the same things. Yes. What do you stand to gain from this when you're with younger people who have, well, you could argue, less perspective, less knowledge, and uh, less expertise on these things? Oh, so much. So much to gain. Uh, so here's
0: my background in natural history. Um, I, um, throughout my childhood, I was an, an, an amateur naturalist. Uh, anytime I could find a field guide, I would stay up late at night field guides with my flashlight Um, at uh the university i studied natural history uh conservation biology um and environmental education got a master's degree in uh i got a master's degree in wildlife biology and then uh, a postgraduate certificate in scientific illustration so I have a lot of nature, natural history background. And back when I started teaching people about nature in those days, sort of the state of the art was, if you want to teach somebody about redwood trees, you memorize a bunch of stuff about redwood trees. And then you walk up to the redwood trees and try to download this information in the most engaging way you can. Right. And when you as a participant are along on one of those hikes. You'll you'll listen to your ranger, your naturalist, and you'll be thinking, wow, she sure knows a lot about redwood trees. And you'll be entertained in the moment. And then you go home and you forget all those details and all that information. And what you remember was, wow, there's a a naturalist out there who sure knew a lot about redwood trees. And if you go to the park, go along with her because she'll tell you interesting things and keep you entertained. Right. And that doesn't change people. It doesn't connect people with the natural world. I think that's not the naturalist guide that I want to be. I want to contrast that with what we do when we're nature drunk we have these three practices that we do. They are, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of. So, I notice is whatever I observe. And we walk up to something, and what my daughters and I will do is we'll start saying out loud, I notice this about it, I notice this, I notice this, I notice this, I notice this, I notice this. When you are observing with other people. Something that you very quickly realize is that other people notice things that are different than what you would have noticed. right? And that perspective is really interesting and really, really useful. Because if I want to grow, I want to regularly expose myself to different perspectives and different ways of thinking about things. Um, I also want to expose myself to different ways of fundamentally looking at things. Mm-hmm. So when they notice something that I wouldn't have seen, that will pull my brain into an investigation of that same phenomenon. And we do the same with questions. As we start to observe something, questions begin to come up. The kind of questions that I will ask is based on my experience and my mood and my presuppositions and my training. And that's different than the sorts of questions that they will come up with. If you and I were walking out in the forest and we're looking at the same phenomenon, the kind of questions that you would ask would be surprising because of your different perspective. And that would be really interesting. And the third part, so the I notice is observation. I wonder is curiosity. And it reminds me of that is creative thinking. So what we do is we say like this, I anything that, any metaphor or thing that you've read or um, experience in your past that in one way or another relates to this, um, we want to bring those out because we want to practice. How do I connect ideas? Whatever I look at, if I start doing it, it, reminds me of all of these different thoughts and ideas. It's it's fun and also incredibly intellectually stimulating. When you do that with other people, there it reminds me of their questions, their and even their observations, we're looking at the same mushroom, but what you see about it will be different than what I see. So that's the fun, that's the, that's the mantra of this nature journaling community. We do, I essentially, we're doing, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of, and taking all those things and putting them into our journals by any means necessary using words, using pictures, using numbers, using haikus, using diagrams, using maps, all these different sorts of things. And different people also have different strengths in or preferences in how they would record something. So even if we had made the same observations, the same questions, the same it reminds me of, which, of course, we never could, um, you would be recording that information in a way that is different than the way that I do. And that changes the way you look at it. It changes the way you think about it. And so another part of the ethic in this nature journaling community is we share our stuff with each other, and then we actively try to incorporate ideas that we see that other people are doing into like, oh, I've never done that before. Oh, you made Mm -hmm. a little map of that and did a cross-section across that part there and then did a close-up of that. I love the way you're taking those different strategies and, and integrating them. If I use that same approach, it's not going to make me a clone of you because I will be looking at this object through a different lens, my lens. But using some of your strategies, I will think differently on the paper.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so much there to unpack. Like uh, what you just spoke about, uh, the latest thing you spoke about reminded me of a workshop I did just now in Seattle um i was telling people about how to draw a human activity in busy places so we were drawing in pike place market and one of the lessons that i give participants in my workshops is that you have to hone in on your curiosity your curiosity and the way that you draw is your unique signature and that's what that's the only value that art has so art and creativity around artistic things is not about optimizing a, a problem or uh, you know arriving at a common, optimized, perfect, best solution. The point is that we start somewhere and then we diverge to different places. And then we bring those diverse viewpoints and those divergent thoughts and ideas to each other. And that is the only value that creativity or art can give us, seeing something that we hadn't seen in this way before given to us by somebody who saw it in that way and our ability to give something to them. So I want to connect this now to how you were explaining the teacher-student dynamic, which was just lovely to me. The idea that you don't have to come with all the knowledge and then in a top-down instructional manner, unload it upon your students who will then passively consume it, various forms of passivity or uh, active interest consume it. But this sounds like a method in which both of you are constantly learning. And it seems to dial down the, the, the pressure on both sides as a student and as the, the quote-unquote teacher or leader.
0: Yes. Um, so I'm teachers will, I want to kind of contrast different approaches. One is where I'm the talking head, the sage on the stage, and I am downloading all the information I've memorized about the redwood tree. The next is the Socratic approach, where I know something about it, and I am then going to, through a series of leading questions, get you to figure out what I knew all along and then say, look what you're able to figure out. But I actually would not have gotten there without your series of leading questions. And I don't think that that is sincere inquiry. What I like to do is to find an authentic problem, an authentic mystery, and then we all geek out on it together. And that is is so much fun. And then when I do that, I get lost in the moment as well. And The students see that and they see my enthusiasm when you're into a real mystery you're really pulled into it and and we want to we want to know more about it and the when this when my daughters see how into whatever phenomenon we found I am it gives them permission it gives them permission to also go along on that adventure because it, it's it's
1: it's authentic yeah, and i I love your use of the word permission here because this is a this is a term that I keep coming back to on this show uh, I keep coming back to in my thought process as well we like to think that we don't or we shouldn't need permission to do things to follow our own compass but regardless, we do need permission and we are always seeking permission and taking permission from the various forces and influences in our world. And this act act of giving permission to somebody to explore their curiosity is a very powerful gift because suddenly you have started a motor that you are not directing, that will take you to these places of learning that you did not know about. Um, you mentioned also that, uh, you know, a lot of na- like nature journaling is not just about drawing and it's certainly not just about drawing ability. There's so many different ways that people journal their observations. So in light of uh, these three terms, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of, tell me how uh, drawing balances with other forms of observation. What are the, some of the ways that people maintain nature journals? Now, so I the, w- the way I, I kind of frame it for people
0: is that there is um there's the what and the how so the the what is i notice I wonder it reminds me of and then the how is words pictures, and numbers, and what we're doing is we're taking i notice i wonder it reminds me of and locking it in with words, pictures, and numbers, and then these this this network. That's what we're putting down on the pages of our journal. So words, pictures, numbers, I notice I wonder what it reminds me of. You combine those together, the what and the how, and, and press that into the pages of your journal. And the journal is a tool that is in service of paying attention, being present, asking questions, making connections between things. That is the goal. The goal is not to have a page that looks a certain way. The goal is this experience of being alive, connecting, and thinking. Thinking is so much fun to do. Sometimes, um, in addition to that, you can be be alive, connecting, and feeling. And really paying attention to what those feelings are. And that's what you're putting down on the page. Your thoughts, your feelings Through this experience that has been heightened because the journal is there, the journal allows your brain to record and to remember and to assimilate and to connect many more pieces of information than you can do just inside the wad of electric meat between your ears. So our brains are limited to about seven different ideas, plus or minus two, that we can handle at any one moment. And when we get past that, it starts dropping stuff out. But your paper can hold all these things alongside each other. And then you can look down at the paper and you can kind of go like, wow, what? There's there's this idea in education of metacognition. So, And metacognition is when we are thinking about our own thinking process. And being self reflective and thinking about, like, you know, anytime if you're thinking about, like, you know, what are my biases here, um, that you're doing metacognition, you're thinking about your own thinking. So the problem with thinking about your own thinking, if I asked you right now to think about how you're thinking about this conversation, you cannot at that moment observe yourself thinking about this conversation. Because now what you're doing is you're not observing us having the conversation. You're now observing yourself thinking about how you're thinking about the conversation. So if I ask you to think about your thinking, you're now no longer doing the thinking. But if in the moment... I notice as we're talking with each other, I see you every once in a while looking down, and you're writing stuff down on a piece of paper. You're, you're, you've got these notes going on a piece of paper in front of you, and I have the same thing going in front of me. If I look down on that piece of paper, that I can see my thinking about this conversation. By looking at that piece of paper in front of me, I can now think about my thinking. Yeah, I'm going, what am I noticing? What about this, what are ideas that I'm really kind of highlighting? What am I putting a star next to? What am I really uh, engaging with? What are new ideas that I want to to investigate more? You're even able to notice what you're not noticing. I can say, with the questions that I'm, if I'm writing down my questions, I can look at my questions and say like, what kind of questions am I not asking? I can like, oh wow, all of these questions are all, um, what is this? What is this? What is this? I'm not asking mm-hmm. how. I'm not asking when. I'm not yeah. asking these other sorts of higher level questions. That's interesting. What would happen if I can now think about that because I can see that process down on my piece of paper?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Parsing that, like, uh, uh, like as I always do, I'll go backwards uh what you just said is really fascinating to me because I've, i uh, so uh, i read this book which was talking about uh, the passage of time and our perception of uh, past and present and future and it was written by somebody who is a is a physicist and is coming at it uh, coming to these deeper questions from uh, the area of physics and his uh, the theory of quantum gravity well it tells us that there is no such thing as the past Every time we think back, we recreate the past. And it is us thinking today about what we thought then. And every time we think back again, we are recreating the last time that we thought about it again. That's that's right.
0: What, what you're saying there just sort of reminds me of this wonderful comment by my uh, friend Rebecca Rolnick, who is a person who is a nature journaler, has a slightly different approach than I do. Hers are much more uh, she writes more, um, does, does some drawing and diagrams, but lots and lots of writing in hers. And mine's, I'm sort of more drawing, but some writing. Um, she described her journal as this butterfly net for sort of catching the moments of the life that she's moving through. And I thought that that was, that was beautiful. But what, we, what when we kind of go into actually studying memory, it is exactly what you're 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 saying. Human memories are terrible things. They are not records of the past. There is not not there is no file that you can pull up of an experience that you had in the past. It is a creative process, and when you do pull up, you know fragments of 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 memories you know, clinging to. uh, synapses in your brain, then there are parts of that that maybe have aspects of what happened to you. But there are also a bunch of gaps. And our brains will also take different experiences that we had and combine them into one experience. We'll take stories that we heard other people do. We'll incorporate those into our own narrative. Um, The it is our memory is a very creative process and it's also biased towards telling a story that has a consistent narrative makes sense to us and usually shows
1: us as a hero in our own story yeah and let's let's uh, say make sense to us in the moment of the now like how we yes. feel at that moment about it so this reminds me of this really brilliant episode i heard of this podcast called the hidden brain and it was about the the uh, the emerging u- uh, like lack of usefulness let's say uh, or the less effectiveness of eyewitness testimonies yes so yes uh, what yes. they did what they did was they spoke with people who uh, like who were in new york on 911 uh, and uh, they gathered these accounts and someone mentioned that they were in high school and they remember the sound and they remember the smoke drifting in the air uh, the debris and the smoke drifting in the air outside their classroom the classroom window. And then they remember the silence that fell into the classroom and how they later behaved that day. And the truth is that they were not in school that day. And they were not even in New York that day, even though they were residents of New York. So over time, their mind had, just like you said, filled in these gaps to make a narrative that makes sense to them. And of course, that makes sense to them as an amalgamation of all the things they have learned about and 9-11 from television, yes. from meet all the other yes. things that have fed into their mind, all the other images and the words and the ideas and the emotions that have fed into their mind. And now they've crafted a version that is the truth to them, <laughs> but is not that's actually right. the objective that, that, that's truth right. at all.
0: Because what our brain does is it takes all these little, these little nuggets. And then when, when there is a gap, if it doesn't have some other story to fill into there, it will just make stuff up. They call it confabulation. So we right. confabulate all these details and we are unable to tell the difference between our confabulation and the real experience. So here's 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 the something that I'm wondering about. <laughs> all right, this is going to kind of get meta here. Um, so there was a a major study on this aspect of, mem- of memory that was done around the Challenger shuttle explosion. Mm-hmm. A professor had psychology students the day after the Challenger explosion write where they were, how they felt about it, what their experience was, how they knew about this, and write all these details and then followed up with them i think it was maybe 5 years later 10 years later at these different intervals and tracked exactly the same things that you're 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 describing here and found that people's memories of this changed but what what didn't change was their confidence that they were really remembering it the right way and so you right. could even then show them the piece of paper with their handwriting on it. And they would say, like, like I know that this is my writing, but let me tell you how it really went down. Right. All right. So what I'm wondering is either somebody repeated that study or another possibility is that in the Hidden Brain podcast, they were talking about the Challenger study. But your brain remembered it as a 9-11 related thing because that is more relevant to you. And if that is what has happened here, it proves
1: our point even more beautifully. I, I almost want it to be this now because this would be perfect, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I, I know. I know. I know. I know. Hidden yeah. Brain Podcast
0: is brilliant. So I got to see is. their episode on this. And I'm yeah. really curious because if that's the case, isn't this the perfect kind of study of, like, we, we remember the feeling of something. We sometimes remember the point and then we forget details and we reshape those. So if that's the case, then your brain would have even made up the details about person describing the smoke coming by mm-hmm. or or maybe really this they, they did a, a study that repeated
1: this in either way this is this is this is why we write things down right? yeah absolutely <laughs> and it, it really goes to show how little the objective truth really matters to humankind like we're all essentially so what this uh this idea when i came across it what it taught me was that really People don't actually care about the truth. We keep harping on about the need for the truth. But what really people want is a good story. That, that's right.
0: We we want consistency. We want good stories. We want stories that make us look like heroes, that put us in a good light and fit with, um, fit with the narrative that we want to hear and so if, you know, a, there's a, an, an experience that is challenging to my identity group, I'm going to modify that in my brain. Um, yeah. And, and, but so just knowing that, so if, if we are trying to make explanations for things and make decisions that are based on evidence, which I do believe is a very good thing to do we have to realize that it is hard we have to realize that it is not our default position and our brain will have all sorts of sneaky ways to um, get us to you know, do what kind of affirms the narrative that makes us happy.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's the best way to put it, yeah. And
0: and so humility, humility in the presence of our explanations, humility in the presence of our memories, the, the things that I feel I know and I'm right about and somebody else disagrees with me, they're not an idiot. They're somebody who has framed this different ways. And evidence and and facts really do matter, but they're really hard to hold on to and they're really hard, they're slippery. And can we use that as a way to be more compassionate to each other in how somebody else has arrived at a
1: different explanation?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I hope, I hope we yeah. can. I I think that's a a beautiful thought. Um, Yes. Now, I I want to ask you about uh, journaling and the kind of people who can and do become nature journalers, the path that they follow to get to it. But uh, this makes me most curious about your own path to it. Now, on your website, you talk about growing up in a family that gave you this awareness and this appreciation of nature. And you talk about uh, going on to study uh, conservancy and uh, conservation in 1989. So I'm curious to know what it, firstly, what it was like to study and speak about and learn about conservation in 1989. What was the general awareness in society around the need and the the value of such things and the damage we might be doing to this endeavor? And also then maybe uh, your path from there towards nature journaling. Um, well, I was already
0: on the nature journaling course when I was sort of doing my academic studies. Is that what was happening in the the date that you gave me? Was that when I was in college?
1: Yeah, it, it, that's that's what it says. 1989, okay. you, start, yeah, you started I, I, to study. With
0: my dyslexia, I, I, I can't really <laughs> keep track of dates. So, yep, I was already um, uh, deep into nature journaling. And actually, nature journaling paid for... Uh, Going to the University of California, so the uh, <laughs> there was a scholarship called the Horace Albright Scholarship, and if you got that, that would that would pay for all of your um, academic fees to 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 attend the university, and so I applied for that, and part of that was an interview where you came into this this room with, uh, there were three people sitting at the table and you sat down and they would ask you questions and, and you would explain to them why, uh, why you thought you should get the, the grant. Well, I brought my nature journal with me and, um, I said, I like nature and I, and I brought it out and they spent the whole time just looking through the book and asking me questions about like, like, Oh, like what about this? Oh, this is cool. And that you know how pe- we love looking through other people's journals. Right. And so they would just get, get going on the journal. And, um, and then they're, they're like, oh, my gosh, we're, we're out of time. Oh, like, Oh, thank you so much for, for, for bringing this. That was really cool. And I walked away sort of thinking, I, I don't know if that was good or bad, but they didn't really ask me much about me. And they gave me the scholarship. And then the next year I reapplied for it. I came into the room. And there's the same three people there. They're like, did you bring the journal? <laughs> so every year at Cal, I got the Horace Albright scholarship because I'd bring in my journal with my next adventures on it. And they were looking forward to seeing that. Um, so yeah, the, the nature journaling was already well underway. It The nature journaling itself got started by um, my, I was on a botany trip with, with my, my parents and there was a, a woman who was walking around in the fields and nature journaling and my mom noticed that as she was was doing that, as everybody else was looking at flowers, she would sit down, she would sketch flowers and what was her son doing? Her son would just sort of sit up, walk, was walking around like her shadow and wherever she'd sit down, I'd sit down next to her and watch her draw and then she'd go to the next place and I'd sit down and watch her draw. So the next time we went out for a family adventure, my mom Got me," uh, she said. "Jack, I've got something for you." And she opened up the back of the car, and there was exactly the same kind of journal that that woman had, and exactly the same sort of pencil. She found out what was the kit that she was using. She uh-huh. gave me my own, and I knew exactly what to do, and that got me started. <laughs> and so, uh, the uh, you know, I mean, that's a great example of someone paying attention.
1: Right and tell me a little bit about these early curiosities what were the things that your first nature journal was about
0: it started off about flowers because i i saw this other person doing flowers um i did i did flowers and um we would go on a family botany walk and i would sketch all the different sorts of flowers that were in bloom and my dad was a bird watcher and then i started getting interested in the birds and then Started These original journals were really heavy on drawings and very little writing in them because I was dyslexic and I was afraid that I would be judged if somebody looked at my writing. At one point, I took a little bit, kind of pushed myself out of my draw, draw, draw bubble, and I wrote a poem. A little a short poem in my journal, and a grown-up looked at that and made fun of the poem, and I didn't write in my journal for years. Again, I'd sometimes put in little labels, but nothing that was going to show any vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And um, but as I developed as a naturalist and observer, I realized that there are some things that you can really describe in words so much better. And it's not that that one system is inherently better than the other, but they are fundamentally different. And so if you use them both together, you'll be able to get so much more richness out of any experience. So if you're there in the market and you're making these sketches of things that people do, and then you stop and you think about the smells and the sounds, and how would you describe that? And is there any way I can describe this action? And what what are sort of what's a vibe here that doesn't come across in my sketches? What I encourage mm-hmm. people to do is then to sort of turn their sketch into a labeled drawing, and right. you know, like that. You know, here's the the here's the the, the person who is singing Obladi Oblada, right? Here is the uh, the the you know words overheard or whatever it is these sorts of things can fill out that picture in a way that you actually can't with pictures right but the art then is in being present and paying attention to this unfolding moment
1: right um yeah and so many surrounding thoughts here the idea of not thinking of one obs- one kind of observation as more uh, valuable than the other say thinking of drawing as being more valuable than writing but also the idea of uh, not disregarding what might be called stray thoughts like if you do overhear somebody singing the beatles then for sure write it down because what you are sort it, it seems to me what you're doing is you're making a business of going from mind to paper and that is a, a cycle yes. that you need to be in. The longer the longer the time you spend there, the better you get at it and the richer the experience you draw from it. I I I wish we could grab our journals and go just into a,
0: a an urban space together and then into a wild space together. I would love to to do that. Where are you based? I'm in Vancouver. All right. So We need to stay in touch because when I get myself to Vancouver, I want to go play with you. And if you get yourself down to the San Francisco Bay Area, you come play with me. And this this, is—it would be really, really
1: fun to do. Absolutely. Part of the reason I reached out to you was that uh, I have become recently curious about my trees and my trees, (laughs) trees (laughs) of my part of the world. Yeah. And I never thought of trees being uh, interesting in this manner but because I would see them behave in a way that I'm not used to seeing trees behave like yes. pine pine cones falling down and they shed leaves entirely and they become bare over winter I'm from a part of the world with more evergreen trees than not uh, then the idea of like I saw my first year a full year with cherry blossoms outside my home so I saw cherry blossoms in the spring bloom three different times the same tree it would shed all of its pink uh, blossom leaves uh, flowers and then it would again blossom and again and then it would turn into this green nondescript tree like for the rest of the year that cherry blossom is a completely different tree which you would not think if you didn't if you were like me and you don't know your trees you wouldn't think that's a cherry blossom tree for any reason mm-hmm. so seeing this made me made me see the kind of character that trees also have and in this way, I was almost like, I think about this idea of, you know, noting down our observations and how we feel about a certain thing. And I feel like uh, we're trying to find humanity in things that are not human. Maybe we try to find stories around the world, how how we look at animals, how we look at birds, the kind of characteristics we give them. If something is uh, angry, if something is curious I saw these ducks Uh, let me show you and I will share it with my listeners on my blog Uh, but I drew these ducks in the pond in Queen Elizabeth Park
0: oh yes and
1: this this is a seasonal pond and it's a spot for migratory birds and I was drawing them and I thought this is perfectly uh, innocuous nothing wrong with doing this but the ducks were not happy to see me do this Uh, within a minute, if I would sit down in one spot, within a minute, they would look at me. After two minutes, the geese would start flapping their wings at me, and I would have to change to a different spot. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know why I'm talking about this, but I'm just... It's interesting to me how uh, the idea of being sneaky around nature and the idea of being sneaky around people are two completely different things. So your point i would absolutely love to go sketching in nature with you because i think i could use that that change of perspective to see how you see things and then to show you how i see (laughs) these trees and these birds yes yes and 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 that's why kind of doing this on
0: our own has all of these these wonderful benefits but when you do this in community with other people there are all these other lessons to learn um you're mentioning sort of the purpose of, of, of art for story. Um, as I, I, th- I think that I, I agree that, that, is, that that's a, a really beautiful part of what it can be. In addition to that, it can also be documentation. right? Um, so recording the duck for the sake of not what is my own story. But I want to try to understand this duck as faithfully as I can and document it, realizing that you know I'm I've got all my limitations. But what is, what is happening here with the ducks outside of my story, is useful to do and and realize that we are always we always have we're seeing the world through our own biases and and our and mm-hmm. our own lens, but sometimes. I would say sometimes we want to go for that story and sometimes we want to try to put aside our story and try to pay attention to, as best we can to the duck story and that yeah. those are those are different and they're both useful
1: yeah yeah one one aspect of uh, how I I completely agree of course and one aspect of how I think I did imbibe that in my life was this conscious decision like I mentioned to not listen to music when I'm outdoors. Even if I'm not sketching, I'm not going to listen to music when I'm outdoors because I did not anymore want to be locked inside my own world and my own thoughts. I want to interact with the world and I want to see what it quote unquote throws at me. I want to smell. I want to hear. I want to feel uncomfortable if I'm sitting somewhere. I want to be aware of these little, little things that make up the world that I live in. And this became uh, more uh, like more of an urgent need for me once I became an immigrant in the U.S. I moved to Wisconsin in 2015, and I realized that I was living in a very strange world, of which I did not have any previous markers. I didn't know how things work here. I don't know the way the people conduct themselves. I had no idea what winter was going to be like. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you went to Wisconsin. Oh, boy. I went to Wisconsin, yeah, and six months of just snow, let's get used to this. So (laughs) I was seeing these things, which were so new to me, and they helped me. They made it a little easier for me to appreciate this concept that I cannot afford. It's not good for me to be locked into my own thoughts and only my own experience. And I need to go out and just look at how do these people live in this part of the world? What do they do in their cafes? What do they do in their parks? And in what way is it similar to me? And in what way is it different? So this is perhaps it uh, connects a little bit with nature journaling. The idea of I notice, I wonder, and it reminds me of. I it, I was curious yes. to see if yes. somebody ordering coffee in a cafe in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, would remind me of the time that I would order coffee in a cafe in Calcutta or in other cities of India where I've lived. To be honestly curious about things
0: really changes our relationship with others with nature with 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 people with place the more that we really want to know and to really want to understand um it becomes more and more difficult just to label and objectify people um I could see somebody, you know, initially hearing this and thinking like, no, but then we're like, we're turning like all these people into our test subjects and this is objectification. But I I think that the objectification happens when we, we look at somebody and we slap a label on them. If we are deeply curious about somebody, the more that we spend time and observed deeply, the more we're able to peel back later, layers and sort of find our own connection there and our own humanity.
1: Yeah. 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 Very well said. Like, I feel like people are very eager. Like, the reason why we put labels is because we want to be done with the process of thinking.
0: It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's fast. It's effective. It helps. You need a kind of a map to navigate through the world. Yeah. And
1: those our minds are just inundated by a million things leaping for our attention. That's right. So that helps us navigate.
0: But when we do that, we stop really looking and paying attention. Mm -hmm. And if we are able to stop and slow down and look again and look again and look again, that's going to fundamentally change your relationship with with whoever, whatever it is. After college, I worked in different environmental education uh, institutions and ended up working in a science museum in San Francisco. I was on their uh, education staff and I became the manager of field studies. It was meaningful, interesting stuff, but I had this fantasy that what I really wanted to do was to run off to the Sierra Nevada mountains and spend years making a field guide, sort of painting it from life, from real things in the field. And after my grandmother died, I realized that the only time to do this, it's now. And so I quit my job, went off to the mountains and spent the next six years, seven years working on this book, which meant that through the part of the year where the mountains weren't covered with snow, I was backpacking around and painting everything that I found. Right. As I did that, my relationship, those—those I mean, those, every drawing is an act of deep observation and reverent attention. And it profoundly changed me and the way that I interact with the world. And... I found that at the start, if I was drawing a plant and I was sitting out in the middle of a meadow somewhere and it was really hot, I would just, you know, I could pick that plant and walk into the shade of the trees and I'd finish my drawing there. Um, There was one day, and I did that, and I was sitting there drawing a little violet, and as I did, it just wilted into a limp noodle in my fingers. Mm Mm-hmm. And it just felt so wrong. I looked down at this little thing and I was was like, wow, this is not how to interact with this place or these plants. And from that day forward, I would find a plant that I wanted to draw. I would sit down on the ground next to it. Um, I would paint it, paint it on the spot, finish the scientific illustration on the spot, then I would fluff up the grasses where I was sitting and just sort of turn around, look around me, and thank the valley that I was in, thank the place, turn to the plant, thank the plant. Because in that time, it had gone from an it to a thou through that act of attention. Yeah, yeah. And we, we can't, when we pay that kind of deep attention... We are building relationship and connections with people, with places, with things.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's so well said. You know, uh, I like this story for two reasons. The first is that uh, we often assume that once people know what they want to do, then their path towards it is a straight line. And there aren't any more revelations, you know what you want. And therefore, you are you you have been interested in nature journalism all your life, nature journaling all your life. And you've been making these notes. So surely what you do in your 20s and your 30s is a natural next step to that. But there is so much discovery in these middle areas, there is so much of a person finding out something about themselves or changing something profoundly about themselves. And these are the obstacles that people face, the kind of people I I assume who attend your workshops, the kind of people you reach out to, the adults you reach out to. I find children don't have these obstacles because they simply haven't had a chance to grow into them like we have as adults. But adults have a lot of these obstacles of not wanting to be in a place where they now need to learn again or not wanting to be a student again or not wanting to be an amateur at things. As we grow older, we tend to only do the things that we are good at. And we don't okay. want to go back to this feeling of being bad at something. It's not, it's not a good thing to do something that you're bad at. And if you're not naturally good at it, there's no point getting into it anymore. So uh, some of the things I want to ask you are about non-artists and non-writers, if, if I can use these words, indulging in nature journaling and what they get from it. But also what you said about The the Violet was very interesting to me. I was thinking about one of my favorite books, uh, which is uh, Bill Bryson's short History of Nearly Everything, in which he goes into the history of, well, the history of science, in a sense, how people acquired and cataloged the knowledge that we now build upon. And he was talking about the Royal Society in London and the amateur ornithologists of the time. And the story was about how the dodo went extinct. The dodo did not have a sense of how much of a predator humans can be and would simply show up in front of these ornithologists who would shoot it just as a game that, hey, look, it keeps coming. I shot it and then another one came and I shot it and then another one came and then I shot that and they keep coming. And this is how dodos were made extinct by people who love birds and who were there for the purpose of cataloging and documenting and taking you know taxidermied birds back to london to get their membership into the royal society to add to the wealth of human knowledge but they were killed as a result of this yes. as a result of this love it's such a such a funny human uh, experience with this world that we live in this sort of
0: makes me think about one of the processes that we try to get people to really engage with as we've been described here this idea of curiosity The international school system has this list of prompts, of question prompts, that they have on the wall of every classroom at all these different grade levels and in all these different countries. And these are questions that they find that when you kind of use these as a framework for, you'll ask more interesting questions. So for instance, They have um, uh, prompts such as um, form, you know, what is it like, function, Uh, how does it work, Uh, patterns, Um, change, what was it like before, what will it be like next. So they've got a number of ones like this that... um, also kind of uh, tie into lots of things that I see scientists thinking about. Um, But in addition to this list of, I would say, kind of science function questions, the ones on the bottom of their list are things like perspective. What are different points of view on this? And finally, responsibility. What is my responsibility to this? And these kids are regularly thinking about how does this how does this affect me? How do I affect it? Um, what is my role in this interaction? Uh, uh, what are my capacities here? What are my responsibilities here that framing I think is absolutely beautiful to help us become better citizens together on this planet and to help us kind of address some of those sorts of things.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so well put. Um, Now, Jack, uh, we have uh, explored the how, we've explored the what, um i have more questions around these but i also want to explore the why of such activities
0: well actually maybe b- before we we do let's let's just just let's bounce one more moment into a little bit of the how because mm-hmm. i think that you you touched on something that i think was so critical and so profound i wanted just to spend a little bit more in that you were you were talking about how Especially as adults, we don't want to do things that where we're gonna have the vulnerability of not being an expert. And the degree to which adults that our identity is wrapped up in our capabilities and our expertise. So if you say you ask somebody, you know, like who do you, who are you? Uh people will tell you what they're good at. So like in in the classes that I teach, I see many more um, the the people who I see kind of who are willing to kind of dive into it, be vulnerable, and to learn. It would be interesting to see if you've made the same observation. I see young people, I see elders, and in the middle of that, I also see. Um, uh, Women getting involved and taking that risk, but the number of uh, a, 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 a say adult male's mid-career, right? I, for, for my experience is that that is probably the demographic that is, is is least represented. But then when they folks get older and they've retired then all of a sudden I'm seeing men come back into it. Um, And just sort of thinking about the degree to which, in order to grow with anything, we need to be present in and comfortable in that space where we are at this point not an expert. We're new to this green and that that's, that's a vulnerability. And so I think a lot of people opt out of trying new things at that time and the more that we are aware of that tendency in us that also you're talking about the idea of permission before that's a powerful way of giving ourselves permission to take the risk to take those to get on the path to grow with any new skill
1: yeah 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 that's abs- i i absolutely agree and i think my observations are also Quite similar to that, uh, I essentially think any conversation between two or more males eventually uh, descends into a dick measuring contest of some kind. It's (laughs) our our egos and our patriarchal attitudes keep getting in the way of being human. And we don't allow like permission is the right word. We don't. And, you know, permission is not just outside. So much of permission is what you give yourself. And we do not give ourselves the permission to do things that might appear, and I'm using all of these words in quotes because they are misrepresentations and very skewed ideas, things that are not useful, things that are not productive, things that do not add to the things I already know and therefore help me build my empire or help me build my pyramid a little taller. The idea that everything, our life is a single monument that we are constructing and therefore Let's not talk about other things right now. This is the monument I'm working on. This is the one that's my ambit, my responsibility. These are such deeply damaging ideas, which they restrict our human experience. They make us lesser people because we make the point of, the uh, you know, it's like that quote, uh, well, that poem by Shelley about uh, the, the Pharaoh Ramses saying, uh, Ozymandias saying, look upon my works ye mighty and despair. But around his tomb, like these were the words written on his tomb. But around his tomb, there are no works. The sand has swallowed everything. And the the poem is about the futility of human endeavor. But I feel like we have a realization of that at different points in our lives. Maybe it is when our professional aspirations have reached their climax. Maybe when certain other pursuits of our lives have concluded and we know we finally surrender to the feeling that we're not going to get better or we're not going to get bigger or we're not going to become richer or smarter at this one line. And finally, finally, uh, we allow ourselves, we give ourselves the permission to just be human and just be curious and look to the left and to the right and not just straight ahead. Oh.
0: (laughs) I I don't know that poem and I'm going to, uh, that's, that's one I'm definitely going to be looking up.
1: Let me actually find this poem and I can read it All right, so it's a short poem. Here's how it goes. It's written by Percy Shelley in the 1800s. Uh, The poem is called Ozymandias, and it reads, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, Whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command the lone and level sands stretch far away. Oh. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. So if that path straight ahead, accumulating that, 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 those monuments, that's what you spent his life on, Not looking to the right, not looking to the
1: left. Um, You know, our thought process is around this monumentalization of life. Like, the purpose is to build a large monument. This is literally a phallic tendency, right? Like, we only want to big, big, shiny, pointy things that go high up in the sky. And that's not necessarily the point of life, (laughs) but... It takes, it takes different people, different circumstances and different life experiences to appreciate that that's not the point of life. And usually uh, people who are not on top of the pyramid, well, atop top of the social pyramid, as men have been traditionally for so many years, they have more opportunities to appreciate that life is about more things than just this. So let me bring in
0: another poem as, as the counterpoint to this wonderful Ozymandias poem. Um, so this is, uh, thinking about what is important in life. So for Ozymandias, it's sort of, it's, it's making the best obelisks you can to celebrate yourself. Um, and this is a poem by the poet Mary Oliver in which she's finding what's important. And what is she doing? she's going to be looking at a (laughs) grasshopper. So this is her poem, The Summer Day. She says, who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down into the grass. How to kneel down into the grass. How to be idle and blessed. How to stroll through the fields. Which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life
1: beautiful yeah and again it just the we need different perspectives to show us that maybe there is a little more to this than just becoming more productive at sending more numbers up in more graphs yeah so uh Jack, I want to talk about uh, so many other things about nature journaling and nature stewardship as well, but uh, this is a good point for us to take maybe a five-minute break. Let's refresh ourselves. Great. I'll see you in five. Hey, this is so much fun. I hope you've enjoyed the episode so far. There's a lot of excitement on the other end, so don't even move at all. Give me just a moment of your time to speak about my sponsors. My sponsors are, of course, listeners just like you. This is an independent podcast produced, managed, run, mismanaged just by me, all by myself. And I get by with a little help from Super Listeners and Sneaky Art Insiders. Super Listeners constitute the generous audience that taps the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee. If you're enjoying this episode, think about it. Show me your support, buy me a coffee. This is also a great way to let me know exactly what you liked so much. Sneaky Art Insiders are the people that love this show and want to sustain it forever. Tap the link in the show notes to become a Sneaky Art Insider with an annual commitment that comes to less than one cup of coffee per episode. You get advance notice of upcoming recordings with the chance to pose questions to my guests, and you also become part of the positive feedback loop that improves this show with every cycle. Now let's get back to the conversation with Jack. We are diving into the subject of nature journaling, the work of the Wild Wonder Foundation, and the historical as well as modern role for amateurs and hobbyists in scientific exploration and our accumulation of knowledge about the natural world. We will also discuss best techniques to draw birds and humans. It's quite surprising how much they share in common.
0: I was uh, looking at transcripts from the Hidden Brain episode to try to mm-hmm. figure out if um, they talked about the Challenger or 9-11. And I tried to do a search for 9-11, and I search for that, and it doesn't find it. I tried to do a search for September. Doesn't find it. Tried to do a s- search for Challenger. Didn't find it. Isn't that interesting? That's very odd. No. It, well, but it, but it also is. It it is. It's relevant because you probably did hear about that
1: on a different podcast. So I do, I really consciously feel that I do this a lot, that uh, everything that's in my mind is picked up from all kinds of places and then I restructure them to yes. make sense of them. So I'm very meta about, <laughs> I I'm I do a lot of metacognition. So in my spare time, I'm a <laughs> metacognition specialist and I pick up so many things from so many places until I completely forget where I got an idea yeah. from. And sometimes that's really useful because it deludes me into thinking, hey, maybe I thought of this myself. Maybe <laughs> I'm the genius. It's oh, nice little useful lies that help me get by. And 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 also
0: what's neat about that is that if you are conscious of that, if you're aware of that, then it's a feature, not a bug, right? But I think that I, I understand that the... Um where did I hear this? I don't remember the source. But that our our brains may store information in one part of a brain and where we got that information in a different part of the brain. And so it's easy to decouple those things. And so I can remember that I heard this, but don't know where is a really kind of common thing. And you know, that's why, say, scientists have to be so careful about citing their sources. If you're in that conversation, it helps it so much to be able to 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 tie a string to the other parts of that continuing conversation. But we tend
1: not to do that. Yeah, yeah. Human fallibility is one um, potential reason, but I also think, you know, it's just, we keep trying to do things that are so much bigger than us. And I feel sometimes our brains just remind us, hey, you're just human. You only have a little bit of time and this is not going to work. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. Um, and just the whole I- idea of, of being humble in the, the face of our own neuro absurdity. Oh, I
1: like that term, neuroabsurdity. I really like it too. I'm going to use neuroabsurdity everywhere, and in a year from now, I'm going to think that I came up with it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um. So, you know, you know, tying into this, the the whole area of illogical fallacies and biases and mm-hmm. cognitive biases and how our brain probably got most of those through social identity. This is an idea that's generally in the the circles that I run in. This is an idea that is respected and thought of as the sort of thing that good people think. Right. And so I've, without really doing the work on it, I've adopted that belief. And then I'm going to cherry pick ideas yeah. to explain, to to give myself the illusion that I arrived at that
1: conclusion through deliberation exactly so one of the things i uh, i studied to be a control engineer so i have a masters degree in biomechanics and control engineering and one of the things uh, my professor taught me was uh, one well it's just an offhand quote that he was making and what he said was that uh the 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 problem with the brain is and this is also the the beauty of the human brain so Our ability to find patterns and things is a very beautiful human trait. It helps us do so much. It helps us connect dots, which is the root of creativity, which is the root of scientific progress also, because creativity is not only artistic, but in every field of life. But it is also our curse because we cannot accept that something, sometimes those dots do not connect. And we cannot accept that sometimes something can have no Discernible cause. We cannot tie cause to effect very easily. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is both our strength and our enormous weakness that we keep trying to find patterns and things that if something has happened to me, it has to have happened for a reason. Yes. Either it's my fault or it's someone else's fault. But it cannot be just absurd uh, fate or luck right. or just yeah. uh, the lottery in 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 or against my favor. So. Um, I've been thinking about subjectivity and objectivity. And it reminded me of this beautiful book I read recently. Uh, It's a book of short stories called Exhalation by the author Ted Chiang. And one of the stories in it is about uh, an island in the Pacific Ocean. So this island at the time that uh, colonial or Western influence is coming in and changing the way they live And one of the things they do is that they don't write things down. And one of the things they do is when you have a crime or when somebody has to be uh, tried for a crime and there are eyewitnesses, the eyewitness can change their testimony. So the eyewitness is not required to tell literally, objectively the facts of what happened or narrate the story without you know, taking themselves out of the picture, just objectively narrate the facts. The eyewitness is sharing with you their conclusion almost. They are sharing the human experience. So if 20 years down the line, the eyewitness changes their opinion, then that is the new eyewitness account. This is just a small part of the story and the story is about this conflict between the objectivity being ushered in by the written word And there is some problem over who is going to succeed and who is going to become the head of the village and how those negotiations between various local political powers is going to pan out in this new world where things are written down on paper. You have to say who is whose son and what is the law of succession. And it is conflicting with their old way of dealing with the world and thinking about time, thinking about relations, thinking about what is the human and what is the how. So the... At one point, uh, one of the characters in the story expresses his amazement at how some words written on paper can matter more than what he is saying, that he's, you know, his, his account. And he cannot accept that that is the truth and he is not the truth anymore. So it's, it's a very interesting dilemma. And it's one thing that we've sort of just internalized and moved past in our world because what's written down is the truth. And we have this sense of objectivity which conflicts with ancient ways of living. Uh, But these are all sidetracks. This is, we haven't gotten back to our conversation, so to say.
0: But sometimes those sidetracks are just so much fun.
1: The best, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep taking detours. uh, But (laughs) uh, on this subject, Uh, firstly, the reason why I really knew I wanted to reach out to you and talk to you was, how the heck does somebody draw birds? Because (laughs) usually I find them in the sky, very far away from me. If they're not in the sky very far away from me, I find them on trees, obscured by leaves and usually not in clear sight. So just take me through this process of going out and drawing a bird. How does it work?
0: So uh, when you come on down here to the San Francisco Bay Area, we're going to go out and draw some birds together. And what we'll probably do to get ourselves started is... um go out to a, uh, a a marsh where there are ducks and geese of various types swimming around in clear sight and uh some of them are napping on the sides on the banks and um with those ducks it's essentially a still life
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it's it's holding still for us Um, and so we start with that and then we can move into, um, one of the ducks that is out in the open water there. And what it's doing is it is going about a series of behaviors. It's feeding every once in a while. It tips up and the little duck butt pops up into the air and then it pops its head up and, and then does it again and does it again and does it again. And so what we do is we would start sketching, you know, one pose and then it would move out of that pose. And for some reason, if you try to wait for it to come back into that original pose at that moment, they never do. (laughs) But if you just kind of like, oh, here's a new pose and I'm going to draw that and then oh, there's a new pose and I'm going to draw that and then there's a new pose. And you flow from one to the next, to the next, to the next. The goal here is to try to kind of have a minimum of this feeling like, "Ah, you just moved each time it moves. So you've got several different drawings going. And then when it comes back to a position that you saw started earlier, you're just going to as seamlessly as possible kind of flow back into that drawing. And so instead of say gesture sketching when the person's going to do this for a while, then you're going to do this for a while. These are constantly moving, but they are going to come back to a bunch of these same poses again and again. And the drawing that you get the furthest along on will be the most characteristic posture of the duck. And you don't have to finish any of these drawings. Um, Another strategy is to just like, well, just take a look at the head or maybe the beaks of the ducks. And there's a bunch of different types of ducks out here on the pond. But, you know, each species actually has a different kind of pattern on their beak. That one's yellow with a little black tip. That one is black with a little white line around the end of it. That one has a bright blue bill. And so we can, if by just sort of taking a little bit, instead of that whole, you make your life a little bit easier just by taking a little nugget. I'm going to try to catch that. I'm going to try to catch that. I'm going to try to catch that. So there's a number of strategies that you can do. You do the same sort of approach if you're looking at shorebirds. So they move, but then the tide gets high, and they all take a nap. (laughs) Well, they're just taking a nap. And every once in a while, they move their head around. And then the tide goes back down, and then they're moving around, but they're staying in your view. So that's another place where the birds are being cooperative. And something that's neat is that, it's because they can fly away at any point that they're actually safe sitting there in front of you. If you're looking at mammals, every once in a while you sort of see a deer at the edge of the clearing and all the rest of the mammals are hidden. Mammals, Mammologists get really excited when they find an animal track or some scat. Like, oh look, animal evidence. You know, mammal evidence. But, The bird watchers are watching the birds do all these things all the time right out in front of them. And it's because they can fly that they don't have to hide from us. We can add to that if you, um, just as, say, studying human anatomy, we're able to draw the human figure more accurately. The same is true with, um, with with drawing these birds. So if you know a little bit about the duck anatomy, and it's simpler than human anatomy, um, a lot of the, the confusing parts are hidden by this big layer of feathers. But you, if you understand how that's basically put together, that also really helps you be able to draw it. And once you cut your teeth with those sorts of things, then we'll go for a cooperative bird over there in the bushes. And eventually you can get yourself to the point where there's a bird that's really active and it's bouncing around inside this bush and you get a glimpse of it here and a glimpse of it there and a glimpse of it there. Um, And you'll still be able to construct a drawing of that based on those different views. But that comes from having spent time sort of practicing drawing things that are moving, understanding the anatomy, and just putting in a lot of pencil miles. The pencil miles make a huge difference with that. Um, and there's one other trick that I, I think Bear is mentioning. And that is a trick from psychology called the production effect. And the way it works is that if I am looking at... If you ever had the, the, the experience where you're looking at something, maybe there's a duck on the pond... And now I'm going to go draw it. And I look down at my piece of paper, and your brain goes blank. All right. So, so the, like, I, I like, okay, uh, yeah, I, and I've got nothing. So, to get more stuff stuck in your short term memory, the production effect is incredibly powerful. And what you do is you're looking at the duck. And what you're going to do is say out loud every detail that you notice about the duck. So if you see something, say something. So I I observe this. I'm going to say it out loud. Next thing, I say it out loud. Next thing, I say it out loud. That I also will sometimes imagine myself patting the back of the bird, physically kind of running my hand down its head and back, kind of kinesthetically um, giving that bird a massage. I'm actually physically moving my hand when I'm doing this. And then the angle of that head and body sticks in my mind in a much more visceral, fundamental way.
1: Right. Yeah. You're you're taking what is just sight and you're making it a kind of pseudo-multisensory experience in order to absorb it more deeply. Exactly. I I like a lot of this because this is very similar to how I approach uh, drawing people also because I draw people in the wild of the urban landscape. (laughs) Uh, I love to draw people from a corner seat in a cafe and looking at the traffic light because I know I only have 10 or 15 seconds Uh... and then they're gone. So I don't have any moment of hesitation allowed. I don't have any time for second thoughts. I can only get into it now, this moment, and I can only finish it in the next uh, 15 second window if if I'm being generous. 15 seconds is a lot of time actually, but I have to jump from instinct to instinct and I shorten this time of that looks interesting to the moment that I begin to draw it and closing this gap I have found in my experience to be really, really important uh, to shut down these stupid voices saying, can I draw it? Oh, how would I draw it? Oh, what would it look like? You can't wait for beautiful yeah. things to stand and pose for you. Uh, this is this is another part of what you said that I really loved. Uh, it seemed like a subliminal way of understanding so much more than the act of drawing. You learn to embrace the uncertainty and chaos of your world. God. Things will change. Things yes. are not going to line up for me to draw them. I will have to make do and in the process of doing this in the process of accepting this fact or that i'm just in the sea so i had this uh, first uh, like what comes to mind is the first time i went scuba diving and i am i can swim so i'm comfortable underwater but uh, scuba diving the first dive was very difficult for me because i wanted to be in control i wanted to know that if i'm looking in this direction and stand standing suspended in the water I am not going to bob left to right. I'm not going to rotate. I'm not going to go up and down. I want to be still. And the only way to be still in the water is to accept that you cannot be still in the water, that the waves, underwater waves, are going to push you, that your breathing is going to move you slightly up and slightly down in the, in the depth, and that you cannot be perfectly in control of every moment. But once you accept that, you learn that you can still get things done. And this, this was a very profound realization for me and it has helped me to also then later approach the idea of drawing things that are moving, drawing things that are fleeting and capturing those things which otherwise I would not have. I also, there are two more things that I just loved you said. You said the practice of saying it aloud. And I, I just, in my workshop right now, I said this to students. I said that I'm an artist because I was a writer first so my art and my creativity comes to me from wanting to say things so when i look in the distance and i see a scene complicated scene in the market all these people shopping this is what i see and i have to say it to myself in order to know how to draw it i have to say it to myself that i'm going to draw two people bent over a table while the vendor looks at them and they have jewelry in their hands and this sentence gives me the information that i'm now going to depict visually And once I have this sentence, almost like a prompt, it tells me what I'm supposed to draw. But it also tells me what I don't need to draw because it doesn't figure in this sentence. Mm -hmm. It didn't figure in what I said aloud. And what I said aloud is my curiosity. That's me, my sentence. And it's so useful to hone into what is my sentence about this moment? And what did I use? And what did I not care to talk about in that one sentence? Let's come back to birds, though. Uh, Once we take these steps, and you're now trying to capture things that are moving in the air, and you said this thing about, you know, you might have a fleeting moment, but you'll be able to capture a feeling of how it looks flying in the air.
0: It's interesting. Sometimes I look at the bird, and then it flies away. And what's left in my memory is sometimes the image of what it is going to be on the paper. And so before it even hits the paper my brain has already kind of simplified that to a few of those basic forms and often i like the one in my head better than the one that hits the paper but that's okay <laughs> but it's it's interesting how I, I i never really actually thought about it that much but i think you sometimes i am i'm i'm seeing uh as i'm seeing the real thing my brain is deliberately abstracting it
1: so this is something I picked up from reading about existentialism. I read about this thing called phenomenology and the phenomenologists of the 1800s who were the precursors of what would become existentialism. So people like uh, Heidegger and Hegel who were phenomenologists. And the idea of phenomenology, the difficult word, uh, fun to say, though, is that uh, to see a thing, but to not recognize it. To see a thing and then to not fit it into the patterns you already know of the world, but to see it exactly as it appears before you. And thus, in making a practice of this as a philosopher, you learn to shed your inhibitions, your biases, your gaze, which is a a function of maybe your gender, your background, your ethnicity. So how to shed these filters and to see something as it truly is, it, as Huxley said it to you know, once the doors of perception are cleansed, or William Blake, it's a William Blake poem. We have a third poem today. Uh, when once the doors of perceptions are cleansed, things appear to us as they truly are. Infinite. And this is also uh, for anybody interested in trivia. This is how the Doors, the band, got their name because I think Jim Morrison read this poem about the doors of perception. I want to uh, link? to what you said about journaling when back in the 80s, when you started journaling, your mother gave you a, a, a journal that she saw somebody else use, the same journal, the same pen.
0: Well, I, before we jump there, I just wanted to, to tie into what you, were, what you were saying there because I think it's, it's interesting to sort of think about the process of drawing and phenomenology because some, uh, some techniques that artists use a lot Uh, such as looking at negative space, a negative shape. You're trying to get your brain not to look at the bird. You're looking at the non-bird. When I, I I wrote a book called uh, Drawing Birds. And it's surprisingly about drawing birds. And (laughs) in that, I broke out sort of like, here's my step-by-step approach of how I go about constructing a drawing of a bird. And I would look at the axis of its body and put in masses for its body and its head and then wrap some lines around that. And it was an effective way of getting a drawing of a bird. The resulting bird, I started to feel, was beginning to feel a lot more formulaic. And it felt like a bird that had been derived through this process. And sometimes it wouldn't have that, that je ne sais quoi, that 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 crazy birdness of the bird. And so I then changed after the book was published, I changed my approach to how to draw birds. And I now start just by I look at the bird. And I look at the negative shape along its back and behind its head. And then I'll sort of put in a little mass for where its head is. And then I look at the negative shape in front of the bird. So it's negative shape, a little bit of a positive shape, and then a negative shape right at the start. Right. And the, the birds that come out of this look so much more alive. Right. Yeah.
1: I love that. So uh, here's how I uh, approach it in the things that I draw, that I have a lot of trouble drawing hands. But what if I didn't think of it as a hand? What if uh, I looked at the whole arm as just this shape, which is away from the shoulder, and I look at the negative space between arm and shoulder? And if I can show you that negative space, I've pretty much drawn an important curvature of the the arm that I would Mm -hmm. not have Mm -hmm. otherwise Mm -hmm. been Mm -hmm. able to if I was predicated on this idea that I'm drawing an arm. And, you know, what you said about uh, going at it step by step, building up these forms, and then it looking like not not having the je ne sais quoi of the moment. What you're drawing is an amalgamation of all the birds you, of the bird as you know it in all the images that live inside your mind. Yes. But not the bird that is right in front of you right now. Yes. So One of the yes. quotes that you, you made with uh, Danny on his podcast, I found interesting, was that This is what bird books are about. They draw a bird and they call it the bird. But every bird is different, even within a species. So you are drawing a very particular bird that is in front of you. And how do you knock out those images that keep flooding your mind from all the, you know, the bird books that you've read? Yeah.
0: And so since I changed my way of drawing birds, it then has rolled over into, it's changed the way that I draw mammals. It's changed the way that I draw all these different sorts of things because I try to get a negative shape and then you can hang some positive shapes from that. But if they're on this little armature that is these negative shapes, that's going to do so much to carve your bird, flow your bird. Um, yeah. So it didn't change too much of my book. I think that If I could do a second edition, I would change probably, make these significant changes on, you know, it's a a handful of pages. There's lots of other stuff about bird anatomy that hasn't changed. And and isn't it fun to watch our process with metacognition, to be able to watch our process change?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And this is something that I really like about the pages of your journal that I was able to look through online, that there's so much active thought happening. There are There is a time when you start to draw it and then you decide you want a different, or you're, you're just simply, the bird changes its angle and you decide to pursue it from that new angle. And there are four or five incomplete sketches before there is a complete yeah. sketch on the next page. And this is this active process of you thinking it out and not only thinking it out in terms of how to depict it or how am I going to get this done, but also little things. Like I, as coming from somebody who doesn't know bird anatomy at all, what I take from it is little ways of solving these little problems. How am I going to deal with how its neck curves? How am I going to deal with that beak? What is the solution for how its body curves down towards its legs? And uh, you're just solving those. You're finding little solutions and then it results in the final drawing that comes out. And none of this is planned. All of it is simply by following what you have in front of you and faithfully executing you know, the best you can from what you see.
0: And, and trying to give yourself, there's permission again, give yourself permission to believe the bird.
1: Yeah, right. And over the images that are already in our minds. Right. And those, those images in the, in the mind, actually having studied the anatomy is really, really
0: helpful. But then being able to let that go And to work with the shape that I actually see. So now my approach is I start with these sort of uh, phenomenological approaches of of these negative shapes. And then I will get constructivist off of that frame. Whereas I used to start by being constructivist. You know, blocking in here is the form of the head and then kind of tuck in a few little details by looking at negative shapes. But again, that gave me a lot more birds that were just doing what my brain thought they should be doing. I I, I made drawings that looked like my drawings.
1: Now let's get back to these early drawings. I'm very curious about uh, you starting to journal in the 80s as a young person because of one fundamental difference the lack of technology. Oh, let's, before I go into the question, I think your daughter wants yes. your attention for a bit. Let me? can I help? Oh, um, the,
0: I'm, I'm still doing the, 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 the podcast. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll probably be, um, uh, having a conversation for the next 45 minutes.
1: Thank you, honey. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, yes, I'm, so, I'm sorry for taking a lot of time. Because no, these no, are... no, no,
0: no, 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 this is, this is, this is okay. The task that we are doing there, it it, it is one that is, is, is okay for it to, to wait. We're going to practice our ukuleles together and that will be really fun. But, um, and the, so I, I told her I, this morning I was going to have a, uh, a conversation with you. And I said that when, when that is finished, if I'm working at my computer, um, she can uh, come in and I gave her a a, a a magic wand and she could zap me with the magic wand.
1: Oh, that's what she was holding. That's right.
0: So it's a magic wand. So, you, so she could zap me with the magic wand and then I would leave my computer and we would go and, and work on, on our projects together. But it, but first we, we get to have, I'm going to have this conversation. But see, the magic wand doesn't really work until our conversation is over but then on all the rest of the stuff that i'm doing on my computer today um Mm -hmm. her magic wand has dips on my time
1: ah excellent that's a great system i like it
0: (laughs) a a little bit of absurdity is just so much fun And, and i've also started adding a little bit of absurdity into my nature journal and actually my daughter has been really instrumental in and it's been really good. It's been really good. Because sometimes my, my, my journals, I kind of would get into this sort of like, I'm a scientist, and I'm being analytical kind of mm-hmm. mode, and that's fine. And it's got its place, and it's useful, but it is not all that we can do, right? Right. And so um, she has a stuffed harbor seal puppet named Morp. And Morp is 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 really fun. Um, we have a lot of fun with it. I believe he went to the Galapagos with you. Morp went to the Galapagos. That's right. And what she inspired me to do is she said, "We want you to bring Morp into your nature journal. So Morp ended up as this little character, this little harbor seal, who pops up in my nature journal and gives commentary on things and has has opinions about stuff or maybe makes another observation or is is also kind of sometimes a kind of a metacognitive voice um, often also injecting a little bit of humor into it and I found that this was it was this wonderful extra vehicle for bringing both lightness and this level of metacognition into my journal a little bit of analysis from more. And it also kind of gets me kind of into, like I get to draw this little cartoon of, I was drawing a a potato that had sprouted in my cupboard. And it had these two little growths sticking out of it. And it it looked like a little Viking helmet. And so Morp with a Viking helmet on Uh, down in the corner of my journal page, had a lot to say about this. And, (laughs) uh, you know, that's, yeah, a little bit of absurdity kind of, also when we're having fun and we're being playful Mm -hmm. and can laugh, our brains are a little bit more relaxed. I think we're in a much more creative state than when we're kind of like clenched up.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it lends itself to discovery and more clearly gives you permission to do that. Morp
0: gives me permission to let that out, because my daughter said, "Like you need to bring more up into your nature journal, and we want more Morp. And so, <laughs> so, he, so he did. Yeah, she gave me permission to give myself permission
1: to let go, and so that's wonderful. So, uh, yeah, uh, I wanted to go back to the journal journaling in the eighties because, well, the biggest obvious difference is the lack of technology around it. So how does this process work for somebody who's young and trying to get into things when you cannot instantly identify the plant you're looking at or the 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 kind of butterfly or any kind of life that you find and that you somehow depict but you don't have the so you know the big difference now is if I have a question I can fi- I am determined to find out the answer that very moment. I do not suspend my life with that question i need to know the answer because my phone is here and it has google i can find out the answer and therefore i must yeah. so uh, but this is and this also is...
0: now you've got seek are, they, are you familiar with that app
1: right that's the one i'm
0: using that's it's very very good it's very very good um so yeah for folks who don't know you point your phone at the plant <laughs> the phone <laughs> figures out what plant you're looking at um, to whatever level of specificity it can, and that's often, uh, that's 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 often uh, down to the species level. It gives you its mm-hmm. percent certainty that it's, it's that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I I started pre seek, and so I now write field guides, but I think that. Knowing the names of things, and what is this, what is that, is probably, that's that's the shallow end of the pool of all the questions that I can ask. The names are something that human beings invented and associated with this thing that has been in the process of growing and changing on a planet for billions of years. And, oh. If I don't know what it is, um, then in addition to the who's that, um, the what, where, when, how, why questions are are all there at my fingertips to play with. A few years ago, I, I went to, to Mexico mm-hmm. and l- intentionally left um, all the field guides at home. So that when I was out there, I wasn't really focusing on who's this, who's this, who's that. I was trying to get myself to observe that and observe this next thing and see what I could see about behavior. And I made a ton of cool behavioral notes. Right. And I'm seeing all these neat things that the birds do. Because, again, the bird can fly away, so it can sit there in front of me and go through its whole courtship routine or nest building or taking care of its babies or or whatever it's 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 food foraging behavior is i get to watch the bird go do bird things that's that's awesome that's really really cool
1: yeah yeah and I, I, it seems to me like, you know, of course, when we didn't have technology, this was the only way we could do things. This, the, there is no way for you to find out while you're there, unless you have the specific field guide for that forest or that part of the world. Yeah. There is very little, uh, there's no other way for you to find out exactly what bird something is, exactly what plant you found, exactly which flower you drew. And that process of giving it a name comes so much later. Now that it is immediate, now that people can use Seek and Google Lens and infinite other tools, how has, it, how has this changed what nature journaling becomes? How has it changed it for good? And what are some ways that it's not helpful? Um,
0: something that we now have to really prompt ourselves to do on a regular basis is to sit with a mystery. And to intentionally, I'm not going to Google this. Let's see what I can figure out from my own direct observations. I see a phenomenon and I'm going to puzzle about it. I'm going to... I also see a phenomenon and let's see what I can do to figure out what's going on there. I mean, it used to be that before there were even encyclopedias that everybody had access to. Scientists amateur and professional had this general feeling that you can figure stuff out by sitting on a rock and watching Mm -hmm. and so you can actually figure tons of stuff out you're not going to be able to figure out just by without going to a reference what is the american ornithological union's latest name for this species but all the rest of this stuff, all the book stuff that's in these books on natural history of sparrows came from people just like us watching sparrows. So we watch the sparrows and we try to figure out what does it do based on our own observations. And we write that down. Each little tidbit is, a, is significant. And um, so something that I now encourage people to do is to uh, not worry about what it is but try to figure out how much of the story that is happening here they can figure out by their own direct observations. And I, right. don't, I don't have to know your name right, in order to, to, to play with that. And the name also can do a lot of damage. And part of that is uh, something called the, the Zergonic effect. So the the effect is really cool. If you ever studied for a test, taken that test, and then had all the stuff that you studied for that test just disappear out of your brain. What your brain Every is, test. Yeah. <laughs> it, your brain is being really practical. Your brain is saying, like, you know what? Now I, I don't need this anymore. So all the resources that I've been devoting to this, I can now I, I can now do something else and so this was originally studied by uh a a researcher named Zurganek and she noticed that that waiters in sort of high-end restaurants who weren't writing things down on a piece of paper they could come to right. the table they could they could they they learned they, they, they this person wants this and you know what side of salad dressing do you want and and oh you're gluten intolerant so no croutons on that okay and all these other Details from from each person at that table. They're not writing it down. They go to the back. They tell the chef exactly what those people want. And uh, seven minutes later, they arrive back at the table. They're putting the right plate in front of the right people. And then come back um, 10 minutes after that with the entrees for everybody.
1: That's impressive. Yeah. And, and also the next step, which is to completely forget about it so that you can take a fresh order. That's right. And what she, what she found is that the
0: that, that person's memory for this was incredibly good until they got the check. <laughs> and once they had the check, select all, delete. Right, right. And so for a lot of us, once we have a feeling of task completion, we stop paying attention, right. and for it's very easy for people like to think like, well, "What do you do with with plants and trees?" Oh, you go out and identify. them. Once we identify them, then we have this sense of task completion, and so we stop paying attention. And so, yeah. um, when I'm out with well, something that I I will regularly do is not identify species when I'm leading trips and that sometimes at the, at the end of the day you know we can add that into our journals right. but when we're out there in the field if we go like ah oh, that's that and that's that and look over there there's a this then people will look at it and go like oh look there's there's a this what do you think of that uh, and but because once you once you get that, your brain goes, it gets this feeling of I've got it. And that's yeah. also the danger behind taking snapshots. Because that little kind of satisfying noise that the the camera on our phone that doesn't even have a shutter makes to make that little <laughs> shutter sound. Um when it makes that little click noise, you feel you've got it. Yeah. So time to move on. Then it's time to move on. So you'll people yeah. you'll see people kind of walk up get up the camera, take the picture, turn their back to it, take the selfie. Now I've got it and I'm out.
1: Yeah. And in fact, if they were to engage with it any longer, they would engage with the photo and filtering it and altering it and changing the composition, thinking of the caption, but not with the reality that they were looking at. Uh, I, I I really love this answer. I mean, I really love what you said about the name being the least important thing and how how fleeting and how transient the name is of course like a species that have evolved over billions of years that have been in human contact for thousands of years and across languages and cultures they've had different names and different meanings to people for us to think that the end goal of our curiosity is to figure out its biological name or what is the nomenclature for it what is the the family and the phylum that it belongs to is so so irrelevant to really to being there, right? Like again, it's uh, changing changing the goalposts. The goal is not the identification. The goal is to be there and to really just see. Yes, and and if naming
0: something will pull us into a deeper investigation of it, can be useful, but it is. Very dangerous for that naming the thing to start to feel like the objective and once met. So like you. you if you go out and you want to go out on an Audubon Society bird walk and you'll see very often people are looking at a bird. Oh, gosh. Oh, wow. What's that? Look at how beautiful. Oh. then somebody walks up and says, oh, that's a yellow headed blackbird. And then they go like, oh, cool. Yellow headed blackbird. That's great check it off, and then what's that over there? So once we get the name, our brains go, I got it. Yeah. And and that stands in for, like, when my daughters say, what's this? Right, We'll walk on the trail like, "Daddy, daddy, look at this. What's this? I don't think to myself they are asking me for the American Ornithological Union's name, going, what's going on here? Right. And why is this significant? What's what's special here? And so my answer to that isn't um isn't like, oh, here's what's special about it. Here's something that I memorized about this.
1: I go like, wow, what do you notice? And get them into this loop of noticing and wondering and what do you connecting wonder? dots. What does it remind you of? Yes. Yeah. Sir. Yeah. That sounds beautiful. Like and I, I love i love that it completely changes the business like it makes it approachable right like uh, one of my questions to, like what i actually wanted to come to now is uh, you mentioned how you know even these encyclopedias like put together on ornithology zoology botany all of these subjects they have been put together by people who did not all have that formal education necessarily they were people out there simply pursuing a passion pursuing curiosity and just noticing things. So uh, what what this does for me and uh, like the reason why this resonates with me so much is that I'm very uh, curious about the role of the amateurs and the role of the hobbyists behind all kinds of knowledge accumulation. We feel, and this is one of the ways that we deny ourselves permission. If I cannot name the bird, What business do I have looking at this bird over that bird? So I cannot do nature journaling unless I'm already a very enthusiastic botanist or amateur ornithologist. But this idea that you're there to see what you see and that you're there to notice what you notice and wonder about the things you would wonder about, this makes it something that anybody can do. And it's not about the pre-existing knowledge base or the wealth of experience you come from. Um, Tell me a little bit about just uh, I want to I want to stick to this topic of the amateur, like coming from the French word for love. It's the person that I have like within the global urban sketching community, the people who listen to this podcast, a lot of the people who are artists, uh, well, who make art are not actually professional artists. And I sometimes think that everybody who is not a professional artist, but does this thing, keeps a journal, keeps a sketch journal they love it so much more than all of us who've made it our business to be professional artists. An adult person who has other inclinations, other skills, other business, other jobs, other responsibilities, but nonetheless carves out this time to give to going on a nature walk and keeping a nature journal or sitting by the side of the street and making a drawing for 15 minutes Precious, precious leisure time. They have a very intentional and a very deliberate, conscious reason for doing this. They know what their love is about. I would say that the the person who's
0: really experienced, um, you've got all this background knowledge. And the challenge then is not just to see what you expect to see. But to challenge yourself to find new wonder in whatever is in front of you. Find a new mystery. So I like to if there's a bird that I've seen before, my challenge for myself is to notice something about it that I've never noticed before. Or to ask a question about it that I've never asked before, or to see a new behavior. Um or, or even if everything that I've 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 seen is familiar. Can I think about it in a different way? That is asking a new question, or a it reminds me of, that is going to stretch my brain to think in a different way. So, for the the juice for neuroplasticity is um, getting yourself outside of your comfort zone and pushing yourself. Um, if you're just doing what is is easy for you. Um, you're not going to be growing your brain. So the formula for neuroplasticity to grow new synapses in your brain is repetition with effort. And so I want to be pushing myself deliberately outside of my comfort zone. Um, The same is true for the the amateur, the person who's just starting. So I've noticed, I, I see this bird, it's doing this weird thing and it keeps doing this again and again and again. Um, by documenting that, I am. We might, you know, we're we're expanding our understanding of of, of behavior. Um, and there are lots of interesting ways also that amateur scientists can contribute to a larger scientific conversation. A lot of people who are nature journalers like to get involved in citizen science projects, and yeah. there are, you know, from you know finding a bird and just Putting it in your phone and then it's geo referenced and date stamped, and then we've got millions of observations all around the, the the world, uh getting better real-time information about what is where when. And that's really, really cool. Yeah. You're also doing it not just for science, but for yourself. So let's say I make an observation about a bird. And I see it doing this behavior. And that's new to me. And that is something that other scientists have already observed. It doesn't make this not a valuable observation. This was figuring stuff out from my own direct observations. And that pulls me in more tightly into the whole mindset of I can figure stuff out by making my own observations, not having to um not having to rely on um the argument from authority that is Google.
1: Um changing tracks, uh nature journaling, amateurs, hobbyists, experts and coming together to to build a wealth of knowledge. So uh, recently, I live right in front of this beautiful park in Vancouver called the Queen Elizabeth Park. And recently, I was walking through it and I saw an interesting tree and I just stopped to look at this tree. And someone walked by and then they, look, they looked at me looking and they stopped and then they asked me if I'm a student of uh, zoology or botany or something like that. Basically, why are you looking at this tree? <laughs> And I said, oh, no, I'm an artist. I'm just curious to see the tree and the lions. And he told me about the park. And he said that uh, this park is special because uh, it was commemorated by Princess Elizabeth when she was a princess in uh, the 50s. And uh, she, uh, it, it has trees from all over the Commonwealth. So all the trees from the different corners of the Commonwealth have been brought and planted here. So you can walk in a line and you will see trees from South America, trees from Africa, trees from India, and trees from other parts of Europe, all all living together. And that's what was fascinating about it. And he gave me a link of a website in which somebody had marked each and every tree, which species it is. And this tree library is now available as a Google Map filter. So I have it on Google Maps. Every time I go into the park, I just go on Google Maps, not even a fancy app or a website, and I can see exactly the trees that are around me. Everything is marked. And I was thinking about how this sort of thing happens and how we build on knowledge and how that knowledge gets formalized. And you uh, you speak about this too. Uh, a part of your goals in your work is this act of nature stewardship. So, Take me on this path from journaling to stewardship. How does it work? And how do, how do individuals become stewards of nature? What does it mean?
0: Most of my life, I've been involved in one form of nature or environmental education or another. And in doing that, My goal was to help people fall in love with the world, fall in love with nature to the point that we'd be motivated to step up to take care of it, to protect it, because there are things that we don't protect protect, if they're not valued to us. uh, There are lots of other interests that will come to play. And that has spelled doom for species across the planet. Currently in the middle of a massive extinction event that is on the scale of the Earth being hit by an asteroid. And this is caused by the asteroid of our species. Now, some people try to motivate people to try to act on this by describing the size of the asteroid by recounting species loss and all these sorts of things. And I think that is, in some contexts, useful to know. But I don't think that... I think that that makes us sad, and then I think it makes us indifferent if we don't have a larger framework that that fits into. What I want to do is to help people fall in love with the world. And so how do I do that? I thought about this for a long time and and had to I had to come up with an, an active definition, a working definition for love. Well let's figure out what is love. And here's my working definition. I believe that love is the act of sustained compassionate attention. Attention, is love. You think about sort of your your relationship with with another, with with your partner, with your daughter, with uh, with your friends, with a place, and how that changes through attention. Just like like what happened to me in the Sierra Nevada as I was painting those plants, it was through that act of attention that my relationship changed with that place and those organisms to the point that mm-hmm. I couldn't pick the flower mm-hmm. because of the attention that I paid. And that that's my work. That's my mission. If I want to help people fall in love with this world, to be motivated to protect it and to care for it, I need to teach them how to pay attention. And so that's my my, my work, all my work in teaching people how to draw, how to ask questions, Um, nature journaling, investigation. I'm teaching people how to pay attention. And that is in service of creating a deeper relationship and connection with this world. Uh,
1: Right. Tell me a little bit about uh, how the work of the Wild Wonder Foundation helps inculcate this spirit in people this idea that we that you know that we have the power to even do to make a difference and that we have the power to bring up like this role of the steward it feels again a matter of permission do i have the authority to do this and do i have the ability to do this both of those need to be answered in some way and we seek examples from our world that will help us know the answer for am i allowed and can i so yeah. tell me a little bit about how this works. So yeah, we, we have to motivate people to want
0: to do it and then to help people see that they can once they do want to and, and ways of, of, of doing that. And we can do that in lots of, of different ways. So a part of this is we're trying to make the barrier for joining and getting involved really, really low. So it's easy to start, get involved, there's a low floor and a high ceiling. Once you're in, you can just kind of keep growing and growing and growing and growing with it. And to create resources to help you do that. So to, find, to help you find mentors who can help give you examples and encourage you and to teach you. Um, to, and have that be appropriate for different age levels and different types of communities. So homeschooling groups. Regular classroom groups, um, adults, elders. Um, what does it look like when you kind of get involved in all of these different levels? Um, people who have um, or their physical access to 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 nature or to nature journaling is is limited. How do we how do we address this? Um, also, creating a system that is going to support the mentors who are supporting the people who are doing this. So how can people who would like to find a mentor, how do you help them find their person? How do you help support the mentors by exposing them to an audience who wants to work with
1: them? Right.
0: And we're not at all in competition with each other the more of us that are doing this the more it normalizes this way of engaging with the world and working with each other and that is uh that just sort of builds the the whole movement also what right. we're doing is we're building relationships with each other and alone we're weak in anything Together, we are much more powerful and inspired and inspiring. Um, The relationships build a platform for the possibility of kind of collective action towards what is going to make our community better. Um, So we're trying to create forums for people to talk to each other, to connect with each other. Um, Pre-Wild Wonder are resources we we'd basically been using facebook as a as a way of kind of creating a community forum and there's maybe 45,000 people on there doing that great but that also has its real limitations as a community forum um now that we've got this structure started we can embed within that discussion forums that will help us take things to a much greater level. I, on my own website, developed a community calendar where anybody who's teaching nature journaling anywhere in the world could post their online classes, Mm -hmm. um, and help people find them. Um, that functionality, we're moving over to the wild wonder foundation. I, on my own, um, Kept and curated a growing list of nature journaling mentors in countries and in states across the United States and in countries across the globe. Uh, of people who connect with these people, and they can help you take your nature journaling to a higher level. Um, that functionality can grow even more with you know just just networking people together. What right. are your needs? What can you offer? Let's get those together to help all of us push this forward. Right. Um, Also giving examples of what can be done. Um, A person who I work with uh, regularly in my classes uh, is a wonderful young woman named Avaea Moore. And she has brought... The whole, I, uh, she is, she's, she's adopted this wild area, uh, in, uh, on the, uh, the edge of, 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 San Francisco and regularly is doing all this habitat, um, management and development to, um, make it a much more sort of thriving system for, for, for biodiversity. She's this the steward of biodiversity, um she started this thing where um uh, i guess when she was like a, a little kid she started on her birthday every year going out and for her birthday she would do a trash pickup find some place okay. <laughs> and make that spot on the planet better on her birthday right and so in one of our conversations this she presented this to idea to to us and and, and from that inspiration now Anybody in the Nature Journal Club? When it's their birthday, they're saying like, "This is this is my birthday," and here's, and then then they will be all you know sharing pictures of, of them with. You know, these are like the five sacks of trash that I collected. Um, what are the? Uh, we're going to do the same on Bob Ross's birthday. We're going to have <laughs> go celebrate Bob Ross's birthday with people all over the globe. You know, picking up trash and clean and and picking up trash is not the only thing that people can do. I'm not saying it's the most important thing to do, but it's something that's great because it's easily accept- acceptable, uh, uh, accessible and it is. it kind of helps you see that I can do something in a place and I can make a difference with that. And right. that notion is, is revolutionary, is incredibly powerful, that I have the power to make a difference in my community, in my world.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I feel... Most, most good intentions are stimulated by this sense of helplessness, of not knowing which direction we can go, not knowing if it is worth it. And again, you know, this ties into these harmful ideas of doing only the things that are productive and only the things that we are very good at and therefore not doing this thing which I'm uncertain in the results about. I love, I love what the global connectedness does to this because You know, a person like no man is an island. And to really appreciate that, we have to see how even doing a small thing just in your world by yourself, if it can be shared with people around the world and if we are connected, if we feel that we are part of a larger network or a larger community or a group, there is so much validation that comes in. There is so much strength it gives us. And there is this, of course, the possibility that you might just inspire another person to take action yeah. and start this this cycle. Yeah,
0: I, uh, I actually talked about that in um, a series of videos for classroom teachers of short 15-minute videos that uh, teachers could show in their classrooms, uh, and 40 of those so that do one each year each week during the school year and they build nature journaling skills step by step by step over the course of the year and uh, it's called the nature Journal connection and link to that from my website and also the Wild Wonder Foundation we're going to kind of host that also there on that website and today, right before I got online with you for this conversation, I posted the final video of that series of 40, which makes me – it's really nice to kind of feel like the conclusion of a, of a big project. But that final yeah. one was about the idea of stewardship. Right. And one of yeah. the things that I mentioned in is that, you know, it just like the little act of – you know it doesn't even have to be like a full-on trash cleanup. It can be that as you're walking down the trail, I, I, I make one of my back pockets, my back left hand pocket, which I generally don't use for anything, because I'm a right handed person. So my back left hand pocket is just it's an extra it's a vestigial flap on my clothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's my trash pocket. So right. I'm walking along and I see a little gum wrapper, I stick it in there. Find another little you know piece of some scrap of paper in there. I put it in my trash pocket and then you know a half mile down the trail there's a trash can I can empty my trash pocket into that and there's 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 there's, there's five or six items in there and one of the things i mentioned is that that makes five or six items cleaner that area that is behind you the area that that is behind you is now just a little bit better that's an interesting concept the other thing is that somebody might just see doing that as you're doing that, and I kind of go like, oh, um, that motivates me to next time I can try that myself. Yeah. And the, uh, so we, we're, we're trying to be, by creating the community, we're allowing people to cross inspire each other.
1: Yeah. And, and it's an immensely powerful thing. I was reading about uh, the theory of rules versus norms. And rules are things that you tell people they have to do. And usually if you break a rule, there is some kind of punishment involved. That's the idea of it being a rule. But a norm, so somebody picking up trash that they see and throwing it in the nearest basket is a norm that can be imbibed, that this is how people here live. And therefore, this is how I should also conduct myself in order to live amongst people. And it sounds like one of those positive norms that we can emulate that I mean, they do us so much good. They make us feel like uh, like deliberate actors in our environment with agency, but they also establish these norms for other people to follow. Young people, older people, someone walking behind us, anybody can subconsciously imbibe a habit that they see somebody emulating.
0: And that's, that's right. So, yeah, the rules, we're told that we have to do it by an authority, the norms, we internalize it through seeing somebody else's example. Exactly right.
1: This norms are picked up from community and rules are given to us by authority. Community. And I feel like this sense of community is, is so precious now. And we, uh, COVID and the resulting... Iso- like already, technology had started to isolate us from each other, but COVID exacerbated this situation. And there is a need for us to to again feel like a society and to sort of renegotiate this contract. Why? So part of what I think now, when I go out to draw these days, I'm in a new part of the world. We moved in the middle of the pandemic and I'm seeing it in a new way. This is the post-COVID Vancouver, post-COVID Canada that I'm looking at. And things are the way they are and I have to accept it. I do not have a previous image of it. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to see again what are the terms of engagement that we had established with so Why do we live in a city? Why do we live around people we don't know, people who are from other parts of the world who eat different things from us, have different festivals, different religions? Why do we do this? Like, human history has been about living around people who are like us and being very staunchly protective of this environment and not letting outsiders in. And cities are a relatively newer phenomenon in which The diversity is the point that people who have completely different goals, completely different motivations, backgrounds, they come and they coexist. And part of the goal that I have set myself with my work is not the artistic goal of drawing quote unquote better, but the larger goal of figuring out why and how do we live together? What does it mean to live together? Stewardship sounds like such an important uh, phrase to add to this to this vocabulary.
0: What are other kind of key rules that
1: you've seen for, for living together? Well, so, you know, I'm, I, I can tell you what I'm fascinated by. I'm fascinated by these little things that happen completely organically. So uh, there's some, uh, so as a control engineer, I studied this thing uh, in nature. We had a, a couple of courses on bio-inspired design. In which we are biomimetics, in which you pick up ideas from nature. And one of the so, of course, there are things like how does a, a spider, as the perfect teacher of civil engineering, how does a spider make those webs? This is how we should make bridges. Um, but one of the intelligent things that I picked up uh, was this idea of swarm intelligence. So things in nature that are not individually as intelligent as they are in a group. So some popular examples are how uh, a school of fish can avoid prey, but an individual fish would get eaten. Um, another example is the way that birds fly together when migrating long distances and how there are factors of air pressure and resistance and the older birds and the younger birds are in the middle and the older birds are in the wings to. Uh, corral them forward and to kind of encourage them and the youngest and the strong uh, not the youngest but the strongest birds are right in the front taking the brunt of the air resistance
0: and then as they get tired they can also circle uh sort of drop back in that
1: and kind of draft or the uh, exactly how a, a roman phalanx would work right like if you are at the front and now you are wounded, you simply exit to the back and another person takes your place and the phalanx remains undefeated.
0: The uh, Or a uh, a huddle of penguins in Antarctica as the cold wind blows across, the ones that are on the windward side start to... Their body core temperature starts to drop. And as they, it drops, what they start doing is slowly walking around the edge of the group. And then they eventually hit on the other side and they stop and then the uh, they're now on the leeward side and then as more other penguins go from the windward side around they then are in the middle of the group Until and so the, the whole group as the wind blows slowly shuffles downwind through this kind of wraparound approach that, that is keeping everybody
1: yeah. right Exactly, yeah, and ants building ant hills like these complex uh, tasks achieved by beings of individually simpler intelligence, and uh, how how like how they work in a swarm to accomplish uh, complex goals. So um, where was I going with this? I'm just fascinated. Oh, you were by just t- so, talking
0: about kind of norms of living together, yeah. Stewardship, so, uh, perhaps. Being how, one. how does
1: this apply to a city? How does it how does it work in a city? So. I think about uh, very, like I give myself good questions. So one of the questions is, why is a city? Not what, not how, not where, but why is a city? Uh, Let's do more whys. Why is a cafe? Why is a train? A city, I answer myself, uh, is an artificial construct. It has no business existing except that we want to get from point A to point B. And in the middle of that journey, we might want to sleep. We might want to get a coffee. We might want to meet some friends. But the only reason for a city to exist is that humans have certain needs that they want fulfilled and they usually want them right now and you have to provide those services to them. So everything in a city has meaning only with respect to the people that are using that service. A traffic light becomes a traffic light only when I stand underneath it. And a cafe becomes a cafe only when I order coffee from it. A building is tall only with reference to how tall a human being is. Otherwise, it's not a building. Otherwise, what is tall? What is the meaning of the word tall here? So the things that I see in the city that are this kind of organic, bottom up uh, collaboration are how do, how do parks work? So I was reading about how in certain countries they don't lay down the path within the park. They just leave the green, green space open and for six months they will let people just walk in it and naturally people will find the optimal path and that will be the beaten down path the grass over there will be beaten down over six months and after six months that's where you put down the roads and now you know what is the path that people want to take what is the optimal shortest path and you have gotten the best design from observing instead of from dictating top down what it should be and how people should walk Something I really enjoy looking at is a train station. Just people coming together at this platform who don't know each other, who, if they got to know each other, might not like each other. But here we are united by this purpose that if we are together, we will make this train run. It won't run just for me. It won't run just for you. It'll run when we're all here and we've all got our tickets and we're all going to stand in a line and get in and obey these rules and get to our places and get off and we don't have to look at each other and we don't have to say thank you to one another but we did just cooperate with each other and made it happen so these little instances of how cities run and how we live within it in cooperation in unspoken agreement with each other is super fascinating to me, it's totally different in different cities, the contract is different the equation is different, the relations to city amenities are different and I've made it my business just to observe this as a way to get us to appreciate this thing, that even if you think you are individual, and I think of myself as a very deep individualist, we are still living our lives only by the blessing or the, the sanction or the good grace of the world we live in and the people we live around.
0: What a wonderful way to it sort of makes me think that you know in the nature journal community we're often thinking about uh you know we're we're asking questions sort of using these lenses of uh patterns or change uh which I mentioned before stability growth stasis you know all all these sorts of things you can you can think of of we can observe any natural phenomenon through these lenses and then the sort of questions that you'll ask will be different and it seems that you're doing the same thing as you sit in the cafe or at the train station have you done some really cool uh journaling and observations at train stations
1: oh yes i i love i love to draw at stations i love to draw on the train i look at i look at all kinds of things like i look at uh, how somebody stands i look at how 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 does it look that somebody is standing and then there's a person sitting behind it. Is there a story here that I can find? I I love to see the way that people, you know, certain cultures you line up for a train. Certain cultures, my part of the world, you don't line up. You just go into the train or you are carried into the train by the throng of people that are around it. <laughs> so, what does it mean for how we engage with each other? What does it mean that some people have agreed to these norms and these norms have been set down by what kind of principles? Are people completely different? do people not care in one part and do they care in the other? Or are they just responding to their, uh, their variables? Like if you have a lesser population, then systems can work a little more easily. Like if you're designing an optimal system that never gets overcrowded, then it's a little bit easier to see how it works and okay. it's a little easier to then cooperate with it. But what does an overpopulated system do? an overcrowded system or a system that is simply incapable of handling the number of people who will use it, it leads to a bit of what uh, we think of as the jungle mentality. Like uh, you have to look out for yourself. Yeah. You have to get through the system and optimize for you, not for everyone. And what does that do to society? And how does that change how we think about each other? So these are these are ideas that are running in my mind while I draw. While I draw, I'm drawing trains and people, but I'm thinking about them in this light. And I'm trying to, I'm looking for ways to share that with people, that we need to to be more mindful of just how magical all of this stuff is that's happening. And how beautiful to find
0: that those stories on the commute, which is when lots of people are kind of turning inward to that, that, They've decided that that's not part of the experience that they're really going to mm-hmm.
1: to really be present right. for. Yeah. So, uh, Jack, we have had, I think, this is perhaps my longest... Is it my longest? It's a little short of my longest recording. How long is your longest recording? I think maybe only another half hour from here. <laughs> <laughs> we could get there if we really, really stretched. But, but then that other I person feel, would feel bad because... I feel like I should protect some feelings and... <laughs> I have enjoyed this conversation very much and learned so many things from you that I'm going to now Google very quickly once we are off the air. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for your thoughts. Well,
0: thank you so much for this. I really enjoyed this this long-form conversation, uh, having a chance to kind of weave back and forth in and out of ideas to go off our track, to kind of get back on it, to um end up in a place where we didn't know we were going to be and um I also learned a ton from this. Uh I would love to go uh journaling with you. Um should I find myself in your town, should you find myself in my town, uh let's please make that Absolutely. happen. Thank yes. you so much. Let's
1: do it in nature and then let's do it in the urban world as exactly. well. Exactly. That's what, That's what contrast. I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. Let's build it. All right. I would absolutely love to do that. I I look forward to it. Thank you so much.
0: Be well. Be kind. And uh, I, I I also really look forward to kind of digging into a bunch of the the ideas and, and, and seeds that you planted in my head here. I've got, let's see, one, two, three, four, four pages of of of, of notes on our on our discussion here this will be a lot of fun thank you